Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. And I guess that would make me Dan Pfefferman. And together, we're excited you're here for another great episode of the show. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. When we record or watch all our episodes or on our YouTube channel, Jewish Juwans Pod, uh, Podcast, as well as our website, www.juwans.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Juwans and on Twitter at Juwans Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwans and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review or whatever the highest kind of review there is. It really makes a difference. So uh, before we get into a full uh, intro of our guest, Stephen Shalowitz, uh, we've had an interesting week here, Dan, haven't we? Have we? It's a little bit strange. We're kind of in this weird pre uh, uh, end of the lockdown, lockdown. We don't know where we are, but but everything seems to be coming together in, in, in or could be coming together in quite a nice little way. So opening up the uh, the news right now, Israel is set to open stores, gyms and culture Sunday in a major move towards Jeez, normalcy. I, I need culture. I need more culture in my life. Well, the good news for you, Dan, and for people out there uh, like like us who like uh, who like the gym is that if you're vaccinated, you may be able to go to the gym as soon as this Sunday. Let's hope. Stephen, where, where are you sitting right now? I'm sitting in my dining room in New York City. It's where I'm sitting right now. Our gyms. And, and I did not go to the gym this morning, though I usually do go uh, first thing in the morning. Gyms are open here in New York City. Yes. So lucky. So lucky. They keep closing them down, even though it has been shown that there is very little uh, infection happening in gyms in Israel. Yeah, and the I was going to say because the precautions that they take here are quite stringent. So you know you have to register. They take the temperature. You have to wear the mask. They wipe off everything. You have to wipe off everything. So it's actually very clean, and there's hardly anybody in the gym to begin with. So um, I feel very comfortable. Very safe. I've got a friend who will remain nameless because he uh, he definitely listens to this. Who's been going to a bootleg gym in Tel Aviv for the past several months, uh, where he's got like a, <laughs> there's a special app. He signs up on the app for whatever time he wants to go there. Like a there's, speakeasy, you have to like yeah, knock. There's there's our no the legit door. legit. He has to knock. There's a guy that looks. He sees. He has to show him the app that he has this QR <laughs> thing that he's signed up for that time. And 
and he gets an hour and a half window to be in the gym and then he's there by himself and then he leaves it's a well, bootleg gym I'll, I'll say i won't say where but i'll say i was we i was kind of going to a bootleg gym type operation for a while until it got busted what was the bus like i guess i was the the cops came and uh and, and gave a very hefty fine and um it's such a hefty fine that they're not going to risk it again for the gym owners did the did those working out like you get busted no there's just the owners but it was um a 5000 shekel fine um and if you consider that's a lot of money and if you consider the fact that you know memberships are down and they've been open and closed on and off for the best year and struggling anyway a 5000 shekel fine is is very painful um and so they've as far as i know they've not been risking it i've seen other gyms risking it and and you know taking their chances but uh for those of us who work out and that's a huge part of our lives it's um you know it's it's been a big hit yeah everybody seems to have their thing that's the hardest for them and i, and I know that i won't be going out on a whim here when i say that for dan that thing has been uh, the the uh the loss of his gym slash uh really the place where you kind of go to get yourself centered yeah, and, and relax and calm down after a week it's my, of, it's my crossfit you know that's you know. uh that's where i go but uh yeah let's hope things are are on the way out um let's think hope things are starting to go back to normal all right everybody check it out uh as you know we rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make juanced a regular feature in your life so if you care to be a supporter of the show you can make a one-time donation on our paypal account or become what we would prefer a regular contributor on our patreon account we promise some great new swag coming out soon in fact dan is pressuring me every day now to go and and find out what we're going to do. Uh, it will probably be some sort of a mug coaster situation, but we'll keep you posted. Mug coaster situation featuring our original artwork by artist Rui Magaliot. Terrific guest, by the way. If you haven't heard that episode, we strongly uh, urge you to check it out. Um, and also, of course, if your business or organization would like to become a regular sponsor, we'd, we'd more than love or to talk about sponsor. that. Or a one-time sponsor. Or a one-time sponsor. We would more than uh, love to talk about that as well. Uh, you can uh, reach us by going to www.juanced.com. Absolutely. And do you know, Benny, by the way, and I, I bring this up now, uh, it's kind of become a recurring theme. We're up to listeners in 90 countries now. I think I saw that there's like a great uh, 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 a swath, swath of, of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. which Most of us. the Middle East, except Yemen and Oman. Come on, Oman. I have a feeling I can deal with Oman. I don't know how to get to Yemen, but I can get a listener in Oman. Hmm. Just one. I'm sure we can get an Omani listener. But we, we have uh, literally the rest of the region and a good chunk of Africa and Central Asia and South Asia are now uh, people listening to us. That's amazing. I, so, uh, again, if if that's you, if you're coming from a one a country that... It's not so obvious why you would be a Juance listener. Uh, please reach out to us. We're, we're interested in your story. And uh, we hope to make uh, those kind of stories into into an episode one day. Uh, Dan, I think there's one other thing uh, that we wanted to, to uh, announce. There uh, is. We'd like to introduce Juanced Live. So, of course, these times, more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting to an audience with creative and meaningful content. If you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you, Juanced Live. Just like on the show, Benny and I can be engaging, inquisitive, dare I say witty in person too. Our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from guests doesn't have to end at the studio door. So if you're interested in 
hosting a live dedicated podcast with audience participation, virtual or hopefully soon in person, or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event, we've got the perfect solution for you. Plus, with our extensive network and connections to a broad range of fascinating guests on a range of topics, Juonce has got you covered. For more information on how to engage Juonce live for your next event, visit us today at www.juonce.com. And now it's time for our weekly COVID update, brought to you by Dr. Natan Davidovich, Director of R&D at BrainQ and COVID Data Scientist. The second largest HMO in Israel, Maccabi, just released some encouraging data about the first nearly 200,000 vaccinated people over age 60. There was a 78% decrease in COVID cases after a month and 67% decrease in hospitalizations. And this was during a month that COVID cases in Israel rose by around 300%. This was soon followed by the release of a study performed by the largest HMO in Israel, Klalit, who compared the first 600,000 vaccinated patients to age-matched controls and estimated that the vaccine is, and are you ready for this, 94% effective against symptomatic COVID-19. This is almost exactly what the Pfizer clinical trial achieved and is incredibly encouraging news for Israel and the world, especially considering that the British variant now accounts for more than 90% of Israeli COVID cases. In more good news, in the U.S., cases continue to fall, but this should not lull authorities there into a false sense of security. The more transmissible and dangerous British variant is gaining steam and will become dominant in the United States by next month. If vaccination rates don't ramp up significantly before then, the U.S. will be looking at a tidal wave of sick COVID patients. So I guess the bottom line of all of this, people, is go get vaccinated because that's the best way to... Uh, to do your part to end the pandemic and to protect yourself against the dangerous uh, symptomatic COVID-19 cases that can develop. And uh, if you haven't gotten vaccinated and you're living in Israel, what are you waiting for? And if you're in the U.S., we understand that sometimes it's difficult to get that vaccine. But the moment it becomes available to you, please go and get it. Uh, because as you've heard here, it should make all the difference in the world. Yeah. Uh, what do we got on the show today? I mean, look, uh, before I really introduce the guest, I would say that uh, something uh, that that I think about when I think about the name of his his uh, show, the one way ticket show, is that I would want my one way ticket to the end of this pandemic. Uh, <laughs> that would be good. So we will ask him shortly if that is a possibility. So without further ado, uh, if I gave you a one way ticket to anywhere past, present or future, where would you go? That's the question that Stephen Shalowitz asks all of his guests at the start of his captivating podcast, The One-Way Ticket Show, where he hosts celebrities and luminaries from across a variety of fields, including art and design, business, communications, entertainment, travel, and world affairs. Born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, Stephen worked for a major international advertising agency in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Hong Kong, Ho Chi Minh City, Singapore, and New York City. While producing and hosting a radio show in Singapore, he conceived the idea for the one-way ticket show, which he launched after moving to New York. An exhibited photographer with a penchant for travel to rogue nations, Stephen's adventures have taken him from North Korea to Libya, Iran to Burundi, and Syria to Burkina Faso. He's where, also, where we have a listener. We do have a listener. He's also the producer and host of the Israel Cast podcast, which is powered by the Jewish National Fund USA and the host of JNF's monthly reading series, which features author interviews. Stephen Shalowitz, how you doing, man? 
I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And really, congratulations to both of you for doing the podcast and for giving a voice to so many people and for really for starting wonderful dialogue. So thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's, it, we're excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And thanks for staying up after school because I know it's what time there? Is it 8 p.m.? Yeah. Oh, it's 8 p.m. Okay. Yeah, no so not crazy. <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, do, doing the podcast at this time of the day, you know, takes me away from having to do uh, bedtimes with the kids. And uh, your wife could be listening. She probably is. I shouldn't go home. So there's an ulterior motive behind you, Wanst, is there? I wouldn't say that. But you know the joke that a sometimes. lot, a lot of guys go to to synagogue on Saturday mornings so they don't have to deal with the kids. <laughs> it's kind of similar. Um, so one way ticket. That's that's a cool concept. Can, can people you. time travel? Is time travel involved? Yeah. So basically what it is, I'm going to add on to what you were saying, Benny, Please. because it's not only past, present, future, but it's real, imaginary, or state of mind. Ooh. The only caveat, there's no coming back. So past, present, future, real, imaginary, or state of mind. So it can be time travel. Uh, it can also be to the present, but um, however you want to define your present moment. And it's really interesting what you said about having a one-way ticket to post-pandemic times, because I recently had Senator Joe Lieberman, former Senator Joe Lieberman, and that was his one-way ticket destination. Was it? it was. So great minds think alike, Benny. I'll have to go back and listen to that episode. Actually, I was listening to, and our, and our, and our uh, listeners should know this, you have quite the impressive list of guests. It really is something Thank you. When, I'm, when, I, when I'm looking through it. Uh, I was listening to the episode in, in the car on the way here this evening where you interviewed Ivan Orkin. Dan, do you, are you familiar with Ivan Orkin? I'm not. He sounds like he should be the villain in some kind of science fiction series. No, no, no. I, well, Ivan, Ivan is Orkin, great. Ivan Orkin is going to take over the world. <laughs> Ivan, first off, what a tremendously awesome interview. Uh, and oh, and thank he you. was like, he's a champ. Uh, Ivan Orkin, for those who don't know, uh, in, in, in the New York area, they're familiar with it. Uh, I, I became familiar with it from watching Netflix. Uh, I, I'm going to get the name of the, the show wrong. It was Chef's Table, I believe. Yeah, Chef's Table. Uh, Ivan, Ivan Raman. Uh, he's basically a Jewish guy that's probably in his mid fifties and mid sixties from New York. No, no early. Uh, yeah. About early, early fifties, I think by now. Yeah. Early fifties who moved to Japan, uh, basically fell in love with Japanese culture uh, and ended up staying there. I believe he had two chapters in his life where he was in Japan. Yeah. Two separate sections of his life, but absolutely felt, will you tell the story? Well, he, he just, you know, he, he loves food. It wasn't it wasn't particularly that he loved ramen so much that he loved food. And he was in Japan and he, he he's a Culinary Institute of America trained chef uh, who was I, I learned on your show. So that was a decision that was supported by his parents. Yeah. Which. Well, we're both into yeah. chefs and we're both into, uh, you know, high end. Uh, cook. Are you also into food and cooking? Are you kidding? I love food. Really? I love food. You That's cook? one of the reasons why I love to travel and uh, that's one of the reasons both on the One Way Ticket Show and Israel Cast, I love having chefs on the show. Um, whether it was Ivan, whether it was um, Lior Leif Serkars, who's um, a chef, and he's also master spice blender here in the United States. He's the one that's really behind the Galilee Culinary Institute, which JNF is, okay. is building up in Kiryat Shmona. We've had, I had Erez Komarovsky on the show, Lechem from Lechem Erez. Uh, who else have I had? Um, well-known vegan uh, folks in the vegan world. Uh, uh, also, um, I just recently had Dana Cowan, who is 
Um, she's the former editor-in-chief of Food and Wine magazine. One of my next guests is actually Diane Kochilis, who is the noted Greek chef culinary person. So I love having chefs on the show. And of course, I love eating. And that's one of the reasons why I love to travel <laughs> is to be able to sample everything all over the place. That's I'm true. so glad you liked Ivan's episode, though. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of Ivan, and I, and I had heard of him before. And when I was scrolling through the episodes in the car, like, where should I start? You know, I wanted to listen to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, his name popped off the screen on my phone. And I was like, oh, my God, Ivan Orkin. I have to listen to Ivan Orkin. And, and you know, he really, he's kind of succeeded. And I don't know what's happened yeah. to him since the pandemic. Is he doing okay? Um, you know, I haven't been in touch with him, and I, I really should. But he has his... Um, he has a couple eateries here, you know, a couple ramen right. places. They're just brilliant, absolutely fantastic. And the reality is, is that I haven't really gone out a lot since the whole pandemic started. I've sort of just stuck to my neighborhood and um, his place, the one that's at least closest to me isn't exactly in my neighborhood. So mm -hmm. I actually haven't been down there, but, you know, just having this conversation makes me want to reach out to him now and just to check in and find out how he's doing, because I like to stay in touch as much as I can with all my guests, but he was such a joy to have on the show and for him to talk about Japan, but his eateries are really just fantastic. So, um, and I love ramen. I love a good ramen. And I think he's also definitely breaking myths about ramen being an instant food. Absolutely. Because when you go to his ramen place, there are all kinds of variations that one can have and, um, uh, you know, things you can add and he's really taken it to that next level. Not, so, not, to, yeah. not to rehash so much of that interview, but one of the things that I uh, found resonated with me was that he, uh, he sees himself as an old soul. And yeah. his, his choice of where he, his destination would be for his one-way ticket was to go back to, uh, to basically grow up in New York of the 1920s and, and, right. and you know, live until the mid-70s. Uh, yeah, which for me was like, quite a shock because... Um, or a surprise, I should say, because I thought that he would want to go back to, say, for example, you know, some period in Japan because he's such a Japanophile. Uh, but indeed, he wanted to go back to New York uh, back in the day. And um, yeah, so that one really surprised me. Let me ask you this, uh, if you don't mind. Of all the guests that you've had, have there been any destinations that have really stuck out as extraordinarily unique or maybe even disturbing and you don't have to say who, who if it was disturbing but where would that destination have been how much time do we have Benny, for me to share that with you because everyone is actually unique in its own way but there you know uh there are a few that i think are really unique and really sort of capture the zeitgeist of the show um and speaking of chefs one for example uh is jennifer abadi who is the known uh, Judeo Sephardic food expert. I had her both on Israel cast as well as the one way ticket show. And uh, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners or your listeners, um, will know her and she wanted her one way ticket to be a confectioner in the kitchens of Sultan Suleiman, the magnificent at the height of the Ottoman empire. And so the conversation just went in 12,000 different directions from there. So Jennifer's was, has always been a standout. When I had uh, Dick Cavett on, the famed talk show host, he came on the show twice. He wanted his one-way ticket to have a meal for eternity with Oscar Wilde in Oscar Wilde's favorite London pub or the Savoy Hotel dining room. So that was a standout. Um, 
who else? I had Tim Gunn. In fact, you you very kindly did a promo on the promo shot for our conversation today. You featured a shot of Tim and me right after our interview. And of course, Tim is the fashion guru, the guy from Project Runway. He has a show on Amazon Prime, again with Heidi Klum now called Making the Cut. And Tim wanted his one-way ticket to his apartment. And while it seems like a very sort of mundane answer, it was actually a very layered answer because the conversation then, again, was able to go off in a number of different directions, uh, talking about design, talking about his background, how he likes to live, his clothes, what his closet looks like, and so on. So that kind of had a had a whole um, life to it unto itself. But I will say, I mean, really, every everyone, I had Tal Ben-Shahar on, the noted happiness expert, and he wanted his one-way ticket to um, Aristotle's Lyceum. And so that conversation then precipitated conversation around his work in terms of what it means to be happy, what it means to have a fulfilled life, what it means to be educated. Um, so every one of them is really uh, quite different. My next guest, which goes up, so we're recording this on, we can say the date, right? It's Monday the 15th, yes. we're recording this. So this is going out on Friday, 15th, 16th, 17th, on the 19th, this will mm -hmm. be made available. My next guest is Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond and also yeah. the host of Somebody Feed Phil. Somebody feed Again, Phil. Dan, to your point, it all goes back to food, right? And so it's not a spoiler alert. Well, it's a spoiler alert for those that are watching on, um, on Facebook, but he wanted his one-way ticket to Italy. So again, that then... Uh, precipitates the whole conversation around there. Sorry? He was just there in season two. He was just there, but he talks about why he loves Italy. He also talks about why he actually doesn't want a one-way ticket, but we talk about the fact that it's all hypothetical anyway. That's so funny. Let, let me ask you this. Um, when you give this hypothetical one-way ticket, right. does it include, um, no, excuse me, does it include knowing the language or having, um, or having an interpreter with you? Or if you land in ancient Greece, are you you know, go figure things out. Like, how, how does that work? Well, you know, we can kind of stretch it any which way we want. You know, I've had some guests that want a one-way ticket to Paris. And again, I've been doing the show now. It'll be nine years this coming March. Mm -hmm. And I've done, uh, Phil's episode is two, episode 224, okay? So I've done a lot of episodes. So the reason I say this is because I've had some guests that want a one-way ticket to Paris of today, some want a one-way ticket to Paris of the 1920s, right? Some want a one-way ticket to, one guest wanted a one-way ticket to the world of French embroidery, okay? So what I like about it is that people have a different twist and a different take on the same location. So it's however, it's however we want to kind of take the conversation. Uh, some people say, can I take anyone with me? Or oftentimes I preempt them and I say, who would you like to take with you? What would you like to take with you from our time today? What would you like to show them from our time today? That is if they're going into either the past or the future. Do you ever get somebody who's like, they choose a destination where you're like, oh, you should probably think about that. Like, <laughs> for example, you chose Paris in the 1920s. Like in 20 years, that's not going to work out very well for you. Well, we, well, we often then, the conversation then leads to they would want to get out before we know what happened. Exactly. You know, and related to that, though, I will say uh, I did have a couple years ago law professor Alan Dershowitz on the program, and he wanted his one way ticket to uh, 1932 Germany to avert the Holocaust. Wow. 
Wow. That's ambitious. And that was a very, very powerful episode. And then the conversation then ensued. So I would, if you haven't heard that one, that's really one to listen to because it's fascinating. I've, I've always thought to myself, it'd be really cool. Um, it'd be really cool to go back to like any time, any time prior to the significantly before this, whether it's, you know, Middle Ages, whether it's it's biblical times, whether it's prehistoric times, with with the scientific knowledge we have today. But then I say to myself, <laughs> okay, I'd be able to. Let, let's say I even spoke the language, right? How do you explain, you know, technology? How do you explain a phone? How do you explain any of this? We're, we're so used to it that that you know I wouldn't be able to invent a damn thing. You know, I can't even build a bookshelf with my hands. Um, so it's like, okay, you go back there. Now what, what do you do with all this knowledge that you have, assuming you could even communicate with them? Well, it it would, I think, uh, create a great deal of frustration if you knew what we have and not be able to use it. Um, and interestingly, I did ask that of Tal is that, you know, what would you like to show the folks back in Aristotle's Lyceum and, what would they make of things like a cell phone? And to his credit, he said, look, he said, I think actually they would get it. They would understand the fact that, you know, because they were so forward thinking and their minds were really limitless. So they probably would get it. But to your point also about going back to those times with the technology that we have, I had one, um, very sadly, he passed away. I had one artist on the program, uh, Boaz Vadia, who was originally from Israel, and he is a noted sculptor. Uh, and he had his atelier here in Brooklyn, and his work is very iconic. He layered stones to create people, and he also did animals. And if you Google him, Boaz Vadia, and he was just the most wonderful, the kindest man, truly. He wanted his one-way ticket to be a, the head stonemason at Machu Picchu when Machu Picchu was built. So, uh, so imagine knowing tech, because again, the, the stones, I don't know if you know this, but at Machu Picchu, they took the stones and they, they, they put them, so they were able to, the boulders, if you will, to be put so close together, you couldn't even put a piece of paper through it. So imagine someone like him knowing technology that could have helped them. But the flip side is they didn't need help because they were able to do this without the technology that we have today. So that opens up a whole other conversation, of course. It definitely does. Actually, Dan, it's interesting uh, to go back to what you just said about uh, going to the past with future technology and would it be discovered. This is actually something that is is thought about a lot by futurists and by, you know, theoretical physicist types and whatnot about, you know, what would it be like if, uh, I don't know, if we were visited by another, you know, more advanced civilization or you know, how would they think of us or how would we think of them? And, and they use the example sometimes, just like you did, if you go back in time and let's say you were to show somebody like Galileo the cell phone or something, what what would they think of of the cell phone? And and a lot of things that these types of people sometimes say is that they would probably just be preoccupied with looking at plastic. They wouldn't understand the material and they would think that maybe they would get stuck up on, you know, what is this material? How yeah, does it get the made? design of something? That's you know, interesting. Design. I had never thought about that right. because yeah. you're absolutely right. They wouldn't have seen plastic. Mm-hmm. Forget about going back to Galileo's time. You can go back a hundred years or so, mm-hmm. 200 years, however long, you know, yeah. uh, I guess it was um, after world war two that plastic really came into mm-hmm. 
came mean, into the, it was I think before, but I think probably just for consumer use, it was after World War II, right. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so I mean, let me turn the tables. Where would sure. both of you want to go on your one-way ticket journeys? Yeah. Let me think for a second, and, and we're going to throw it back at you also, because I want to know what your uh, one-way journey is. Um, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. First of all, it would definitely for me be at a different time period, because I think I could go anywhere I wanted to now, so it might as well either go to- But the don't future. forget, it's past, present, future, real, imaginary, or state of mind. Ooh, so, so you don't have to go back in time. You don't have to go ahead of, in time. I could even go to a made-up place. Absolutely. Go ahead for go first. You want me to go first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to think about this one. Okay, it's it's a very difficult. Now, one. Dan, didn't you know that I was going to be asking you that question? Right. <laughs> and for those listeners who are with us live, um, send us your your where would you want to go if you had a yeah. ticket anywhere, past, present, future, real, or imaginary, or a state of mind, or state of mind. Because I think there's a lot of state of minds out there today. Uh, I think I would like to go somewhere like. It's, it's very difficult because on the one hand, I really do want to go back into the past with the knowledge that I have now and try to become like, you know, some sort of an oracle figure. Uh, and, that's probably, and that's probably my ego talking. Uh, but, but I think given a chance, it would be quite interesting to go into a time in the future where, uh, where space travel was not only uh, feasible, but very convenient, take it for granted. Uh, and and the, the earth and all of its societies are kind of uh, coalesced into into uh, a peaceful state of knowledge, understanding that it's not, you know, our individual nations up against each other for the fight over resources, but our species, you know, really united in, in kind of a, a galactic sort of confederation of, of other civilizations, if that's the, you know, the case in, in, in reality. Um, and, and I think that would be very, very interesting to see, you know, how we, how we may have overcome some of our challenges here on the planet, how we hadn't and, and others. And of course, this is uh, stipulating kind of that, that, we, that we survive, that we make it, that, that somehow we, we get through the challenges that we have uh, currently and that we, that we don't end up uh, blowing each other up and, and using the, the technologies that we have uh, you know, that are evil and, 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 and that we make it. Penny, that almost sounds like the messianic era. It could be. It could be, but, but, but my messianic We're all working towards is, that anyway, aren't we? My messianic era includes aliens, and I don't know if that's... Uh, <laughs> you don't know if that's halachically correct. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what halacha says about... Uh, I don't think halacha says anything about aliens. Um, halacha, for sure. I doesn't. think your next guest needs to be uh, an aliens expert in the Jewish tradition. If you, we, we, We've been looking for someone like that, and if you can think of someone, we'd love to have them on the show. Yeah. That would be cool. It would be cool. Uh, I, I actually think there may be someone that I have in mind for you. Okay. <laughs> and let me reach out to him first. Sure. Thank it's you. a very dear rabbi friend of mine. We'd, we'd be very glad to have it. I, I can find plenty. Note, note to self here. Note to self. I can find plenty of people who are well-versed in Jewish sources and, and, and who are scientific who can discuss this, but from the kind of astrophysics or whatever field it would be perspective, I... I just don't know. The few people we've actually tried to reach out to have never uh, responded. So I, I don't know who who would we even get for that kind of conversation. Because no it is something that fascinates uh, both of us. I don't know. Where would I want to go? What, I, I, I don't want to call it a canned answer, but kind of um, one of my instinctive answers is a very Jewish one, and it's to go back to certain parts of uh, the Bible and, and see 
what it looked like, what was real, what was not, you know, if there was a Moses to meet that Moses, if there was a David, if there was a Solomon to, to meet these kind of figures. And, um, would you take your family with you? You know, first time you're ever going anywhere, you shouldn't take your family with it's you. A one-way well, this is a one-way ticket, my friend. Oh, I have so to stay there? do I have to stay there? No, you're, you're there. It's man. no you coming know. back. That's the premise of the oh, show. Oh, okay. That that makes it even worse. No, no, I'm definitely not going back. Then. <laughs> I thought I could. Just but let's stay with that. But wait a minute. So, but let's <laughs> stay with that for a moment. So, assuming that your one-way ticket was to meet some of these biblical characters, do you think though? that your perception of them or what you've built up in your mind or what you've read about them would actually meet reality because what happens if it doesn't because actually i mean these people were were humans and they were fallible just like the rest of us sure um i'm certain they wouldn't stand up to the myths and the legends um you know it's, it's also kind of one of the things that i've always liked about the heroes in judaism is that they're all very human and all very fallible they all you know they have their flaws, they have their their quirks, they have their mistakes that they very real mistakes, you know, sometimes um, things that we would call criminal today in some aspects. Um, and, and so in that respect, would I be let down? Yes, but would I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised to find out that they were human because I think that's the point. Um, I guess if I had to stay somewhere, I guess if I'm not going too far in the, back in the history. <laughs> Um, because don't forget, if you had to stay somewhere in biblical days, there was no Novocaine. There was no yeah, so I can't fill right. in I the can't blank. Bring, like, a backpack of medicine with me. and, and, and Say again? I can't bring with me a backpack of medicine. and. Well, one of the questions that I always ask my guests is, what would you like to bring from our time today? So you certainly could, but don't forget, hopefully you would live a long life so you might run out of the medicine. Yeah. Or what if you, what if you had to give it to somebody? Can you can you bring back like a tablet loaded with all the knowledge we have today that's on the internet? Sure. That I do allow. Unlimited batteries. You won't need batteries on this special one-way ticket journey. (laughs) No, I guess if I had to stay somewhere. There's even Apple Care on this one-way ticket journey in case something goes wrong. I'm bringing with me tech support on this journey. Yeah, tech support. (laughs) Um, All right, Stephen, what about you? Yeah, where would you go? Well, I, I actually have one one-way ticket that's a very personal one that I usually don't share, but the one one-way ticket that I do like to share, which I oftentimes think and dream about, um, which could have come true just a couple of weeks ago, is that I would like to go and have a one-way ticket to next Tuesday when I'm holding the winning lottery ticket for $960 million. Because let's face it, $1 billion is actually unrealistic but $960 million is more realistic. Yeah, slightly, that could definitely happen. Slightly more realistic. It could definitely happen. The only thing is, though, you don't really get 960 because a little over half goes to the government. So let's just call it about $450 million, which I think I could probably get by with for the rest of my life on. Perhaps. You could make do. It would be challenging. I can probably make do. It would be, it would be quite a challenge. Yes. Uh, with, with that money, uh, you could travel... In, in, a, in a very, very, very uh, opulent way for the rest yeah. of your life to all of the countries that you haven't been to, which, which yeah. aren't many. You've been to, I think, something like 70 countries. I think about six. I, I once counted, and I think it's 60-ish or 65 or something like that. 
So you've been yeah. to around half of half of the countries. How many countries in the world? There's 194. So maybe. Yeah. So there's still listen. Believe me, there's still a long ways to go. And I, 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 I have. I'm sorry. Get moving. <laughs> I know. Well, listen, there's this little thing called COVID, by the way, which has kind of put a, a damper on my whole travel schedule. But actually, the funny thing is, for all of the crazy countries or all of these unusual places that I've been to, I have never been to Las Vegas. I have never been to the Grand Canyon. I've never been to Niagara Falls. Um, wow. Other places I've never been to. I've never been. Everyone loves Santa Fe. I've never been to Santa Fe. I've never been to Seattle. So here's an idea for you. Take the, take the show on the road. Get an RV. Put the studio in the RV and travel around the country and find interesting people. Yeah. Talk to them about their lives in all these different locations and, uh, and, and see the country. Well, actually, that was one thing that I wanted to do, actually, this year or pre-COVID is to um, take a nice long road trip and uh, have pre-scheduled uh, interviews set up around the country with people, awesome. especially in the South. I have a, I've always had a particular fascination with the South, the Southern part of the United States. Southeast um, or Southwest? South, Southeast, actually. Mm-hmm. Although having said that, I would like to go to, um, to New Mexico because it's, a beautiful state from what I've seen and heard. I've done Arizona, but I've never done New Mexico. So yeah, I'd love lived, to go there. My sister lived in Arizona for a while. So I, I managed to visit her there twice, including the Grand Canyon uh, before she moved back to uh, sunny Indiana. I think all three of us are Midwest uh, Midwest guys as well. Yeah, because you're originally from I'm Minnesota. Minnesota, that's right. In and and my friend Dan is from Indiana and I'm, of course, from Illinois. You're from Chicago. From Chicago, yes, the suburbs of Chicago, which okay. the weather that we're having right now here in New York is making me very, very homesick at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So, so take us take us through this, if you will. You, you're in Chicago. You you leave Chicago to to what? You're you're studying Chinese, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And right. So undergrad, I did Chinese. I studied Chinese language and literature, and um, I had done a year, a, a summer as part, I went to Washington U in St. Louis. And so I did a summer in China. And then I did my junior year at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS at the University of London. Oh, cool. And then I worked in China or, or I worked in my hometown, Chicago, um, for someone that was producing TV programs for China and Western management, as well as interviews with Sino leaders in Sino-U.S. relations. So Nixon, Kissinger, Brzezinski, and so on. Wait a second, and then so I, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. You're, you're in China in, in college. You, you lived in China for a period. What, what year was this? Nine, it was a long time ago. It was probably before you were born. It was 1983. I was, oh I was born. Wait, this is important. <laughs> this is an important detail because you're a Westerner living in China in the 1980s, in the early 80s. That's when yeah. China and, was still a crap hole. Sorry no, 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 no. It was fascinating. Company. It was absolutely fascinating. I was studying in Nanjing University. And um, I mean, just to give you context is, and this is a whole other conversation, but, um, you know, there was no McDonald's, there was no Starbucks, there was no, and it was the most, um, you know, the purest, I don't want to say the purest form of China at that time, but cars were only meant for government officials um, bicycles everywhere. Um, and Chinese were not allowed in hotels, in Western hotels. Okay. And I have photos. So I was living in the city of Nanjing, as I said, and the big hotel there was called the Jinling Hotel. 
And I guess it's still there. I haven't been back to Nanjing since. And, um, and the Chinese would, I hate to use the word gawk, but they would gawk at the gate and we would walk right through the gate, but they were not allowed in. And I remember on two occasions, actually wanting to take our teachers to the, one of the restaurants there. And, um, I, to say that we had to smuggle them in, we didn't quite have to smuggle them in, but we kind of surrounded them and then walked in, made sure that they had all their paperwork with them, et cetera. There's also something called, there were, there was something called friendship stores. They still have friendship stores and that's where foreigners would go buy either Western products, um, food and drink, and then Chinese made items. And that's where you were taken to buy things local Chinese were not allowed in the friendship stores. And there were two sections to the friendship stores. One were for foreigners, and then the other were for what they called Huachiao, which is overseas Chinese. So I was not allowed into that section that had certain products that my section had. The other thing um, at that time, and even when I was living in China in the early to mid 90, well, I was there 90 to 97 really, um, China had two uh, currencies. One was the yuan or the renminbi, which is the currency, the RMB. The other, what was called the FEC. It stood for foreign exchange certificate. And that's what foreigners were required to use. And it was pegged to the dollar in essence. And we had no access to the local currency at that time in the eighties. I would see it but no one would ever trade it with me. I would have no access and I would have no use for it because anywhere that I went, they would only accept the foreign exchange certificate. Subsequently, what happened was, uh, and I don't know if I'm going into too much of the weeds here, but again, China was a vastly, vastly different place. And subsequently what happened was in the nineties, you had a lot of black marketeers and they would change dollars for renminbi. So all of us that were living there would change. It's not like I'm going to get arrested or anything, but, um, Unless you go by, by saying this all these years later, but uh, all of us would would trade um, dollars on the black market for the renminbi, and we knew where to go. We knew which. The, it was always a, you know, there was always a woman in the market, and we always knew which woman in the market had the money, right? And she just had all this money, and we used to trade the uh, dollars for renminbi, and then you were charged a surcharge if you wanted to use the renminbi. Let me, uh, let me but it, understand this. There's there's two different systems of currency, one for yeah. foreigners that look like you and one for people that are Chinese. Local, yeah. Local Chinese. Dan asked the question, why? I, I would take it one step further. What could you get with 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 Yuan, with, with Renminbi, that, that would make it worth your while to go through a black market trade to get... Yeah, because basically currency? what it was at the time was it was it was more better... There were, there were some Chinese... Um, that wouldn't necessarily take the FEC. But beyond that, it was a question of um, even though there was a surcharge, if you went into like a hotel at that point and they finally accepted renminbi, even though there was a surcharge, it was still cheaper to pay with the renminbi and the surcharge given the exchange rate than it was to pay with the FEC. And also, just frankly, it was just a hassle to have all the FEC all around and to get change in the renminbi. And it was just very, it was a mess. So like if you and so they ultimately buy, did without the FEC, they ultimately uh, phased out the FEC. So if you just wanted to go onto the street, and obviously China has some of the best street food available in the world yeah. anywhere. 
if you just want to go and buy like a bow on, in, in like a, you know, a, a hawker market or something, right. you have to go through this ordeal of like, I only have these FEC certificates. And they're like, eh, we don't really take that. And yeah, it was, it was, they would just take Remy B and, you know, because if you want, you know what they had, um, which was wonderful. They used to, uh, I'm sure they probably still do on the streets of Beijing in the winter, they would um, have sweet potatoes and they were in newspaper and they were, um, What's the word? I don't. I, I won't want to say they were broiled, but they were they were heated, right? Roasted, maybe roasted. Yeah, like roasted. Like if you put it in the microwave and it was soft, like the outside was flaky, and then mm-hmm. the the inside was soft. And you know, if you if you went there, oftentimes they would say, "We just want ramen b," um, or uh, it, it just got to be very sloppy. Actually, let's put it that way, did more than anything want, else. Did anybody want American cash? Oh yeah, everyone wanted. U.S. dollars, but then they had problems then exchanging. If they had FEC, like a local vendor, then they had problems. Then I think I think the way that it worked because this has been a long time already. Then they had issues. How were they going to then change it into dollars? Because like Chinese weren't allowed to have dollars. You mm-hmm. see, it, it was like that. For a Chinese to have a passport in those years, it was like you, you're talking about going into outer space. It was like Oh, Stephen, you're going to go into outer space tomorrow. Couldn't it be done? Yes. But is it practical? No. So, so anyway, so it was a very, it was a, China was a very, very different place during those years. It was, you know, I mean, when you turned on the TV, the commercials were for things like tractors. I mean, the words that I use, that I learned, in fact, I was just showing someone the other day, my um, first Chinese book, the words for things like commune and comrade and all of those socialistic terms uh the word for miss m-i-s-s like miss miss jones or you know instead of mister you you wouldn't use that xiaojie it's xiaojie in uh in mandarin you wouldn't use that because everyone was tongzhi which is comrade um and uh also the word for um husband and wife it wasn't used the word was iron and iron means technically it means lover. Okay. So you would ask who, like, if, is this your, you wouldn't say uh furen wife or xianxiang, which is gentleman. You would say, you know, is this your iron? So all those words, they were completely, completely different words than what we would find today. Anyway, that's oh, my stroll God. down China, me- just part of my stroll down China memory lane from years gone by. Well, I, I got two questions on that. So, so the first is, is, you know, from everything I've, I've heard, I've never been to China, but I know a lot of people who have recently and, and less recently. And, you know, it was a much poorer country back then yeah. uh, than, than it is today. So, so first of all, what was it like living in what was essentially a very poor country that was, that was coming out of the, uh, I don't remember exactly when Mao, uh, Chairman Mao passed away, he well, passed away September 9th, nineteen seventy six. Okay, so you yeah. said that fast. <laughs> so well, I especially know that because my birthday is September eighth, and I remember Mao passed away the day after. But so, but it's one of those dates that you remember when you study sure. China. Yeah. So I guess it wasn't long after that, you know, in grand terms. And um, what's it like being in a country that is far less developed in many ways than the one that you came from and came back to, and then. Why would you choose to go and spend such a significant part of your life 
um, in China, learning Chinese. This was, I think, in the age where a lot of people were learning Japanese because that that was the, yeah. you know, today people are learning Chinese because that's the language of business, etc. But why would you choose to do so back then? Plus, when they take over, you're going to want to learn, you know, another language. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I I had been interested actually in China since I was a kid, uh, because at that time Nixon had gone to China, journalists were going to China, and they were filing reports back about it, and it just really really piqued my curiosity, and it was like no other place on earth that I certainly had seen, and there was just something that resonated with me. So I knew that I wanted to do something China related, and I knew that I wanted to. Learn China and study Chinese, and so that's really why I went. And when you ask what was it like living there, it was really, really fascinating. And、um, you know, one of the images that I remember is the first day getting there. We flew. It's a whole other story, so I, I won't tell you the whole backstory. But we flew.、Um, you know, at that time, you, you there were no nonstop flights from the U.S.、Yeah. to China. You had to fly from Chicago to L.A. or San Francisco. Change planes, fly to Tokyo, spend overnight in Tokyo, and then the next day you went to China. Okay, so it's a little bit of, as we say in French, it was a little bit of a schlep, but of course we were able to make it. And you know, I remember. So we were in, we got to Shanghai, we were doing our thing, and then we boarded the train to go to Nanjing, where where I went to school, as I said. And Nanjing is known as one of China's furnace cities because it's so hot there in the summer. And we were there. I was there in the summer, and.、Um, And the one image which which I will always remember of that first night was people didn't have air conditioners in their apartments. So, going from the train station to the university, the streets were lined with people that had set up little cots and mats, and men wearing singlets and women basically like in nightgowns to sleep outside because it was so hot、That's、in their、awesome. apartments. I'll never forget that. So it, it was just fascinating, and I remember. In the theater at the time, the film that was showing—of course, you can get anything in China now. The film that was showing was *Spellbound* with Ingrid Bergman, which was made sometime in the 1940s, I guess. <laughs>、um, it, it was that China just doesn't exist anymore.、Um, and then to be able, so when I was working in China, though, to to get to your question, because I had gone on to graduate school to study international relations, I focused on China, moved to Singapore. Did more Chinese study there on a Rotary scholarship, and then I moved to China to begin working in advertising for Young and Rubicam, which is a major advertising agency. The reason why I say this is because to be part of that、um, community, to be in that industry, as China moved from a command economy to a more market economy, was beyond fascinating and beyond challenging, really.、Uh, but it was absolutely fascinating. To be able to introduce products and services、um, to the Chinese people, my clients included. I had Holiday Inn hotels, which I remember back in 1991. Going back to this notion of renminbi, the currency, we had told them you really need to open up your your FMB, your food and beverage, and your hotels to local Chinese because that's the wave of the future. Some of the people were very much on board with it, and some just. You know, fell off their chairs and thought, "Are you guys crazy?" Well, of course, we saw what the trajectory was. So, Holiday Inn,、uh, Mercedes Benz, I worked on Kraft Foods. I launched Cheetos in China. <laughs>、um, I also worked on Colgate,、uh, you know, Oral Care. 
uh, also Colombian coffee, the Juan Valdez logo. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Colombian yeah, coffee. Do they, do they drink that coffee you? in China? Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Are you behind the Juan Valdez logo? I wasn't behind the logo. I introduced the logo and Colombian coffee to China, though. What was so interesting was this was back in 1991, actually. Was it 91 or 92? I think it was 91, yeah. Um, uh, coffee at that time, there was more coffee consumed in Japan than tea. And so the National Federation of Coffee Growers of Colombia actually saw the value in developing relationships in China because they knew that one day coffee was going to be consumed in China. So it was very much of an educational program because at that time, coffee was considered very much of a Western type yeah. product. And if you wanted to enjoy a Western lifestyle, that was one of the things that you did was that you drank coffee. Never mind the fact that they put a lot of sugar and a lot of milk in it and made it very sweet. But nevertheless, it, it was something to be. And the interesting thing is, if you had a Nesca, I haven't thought about this in a long time. If you had a Nescafe jar, it was a status symbol. And what do I mean by that is that um, Chinese at the time, I have no idea if they still do this. I'm guessing they don't, but they would have a Nescafe jar, an empty Nescafe jar. They would fill it with tea leaves and then pour hot water in it and then put a cap on it, right? Put the lid back on it and then they would leave it there. And then every time they wanted to take a sip, they would open it up and then drink it. So they use that like a mug, an Escafe jar. And it was very much of a symbol, a status symbol, as if to say, I've had coffee um, and this is what I have, right? It's almost like if you have a Gucci or Louis Vuitton or something. And the Because actually, I, I, I was going to use my Chinese mug because Chinese mugs usually, this is a Western mug, but Chinese mugs oftentimes have lids on them. Which makes complete sense because, of course, it means right. that you don't uh, the drink doesn't get cold, it, right? It, so you put a so you literally put a lid on it. The funny thing was when you would go on an airplane, inevitably, you would see a Nescafe jar rolling down the aisle because somebody didn't put it in their seat pocket, you know, fix it in there, or they would. Uh, 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 drop it or something, but you would always see an Escafe jar rolling down that aisle. So, so two questions on that. You, you, two of the things you mentioned are coffee and Cheetos. Okay. Yes. Now, for, from the little I know about the Far East, coffee, like you said, was not is not something native to the to the Far East and had to be introduced. And neither is dairy products really. So You're a thousand percent right. And in fact, I also worked on Kraft, which was introducing a whole line of dairy products to the Chinese. Interestingly, How do you do that? Yeah. well, interestingly, um, in the north, you know, China's a very diverse country. So in the north, they are dairy consumers. So they'll drink, they will drink milk, um, but in the, and they will drink and they will have yogurt, okay, in the north. They're not in the South, tra traditionally, okay? And then also the Chinese generally are not cheese eaters, okay? So there's one thing to be said for milk and yogurt. There's a whole other thing to be said for cheese, which is right. just a really a foreign thing. So basically it, it was at the time very much of an educational program to say how wonderful dairy is for you and how milk and um, 
uh, yogurt and all these dairy products can build strong bones and strong teeth and on and on. And of course, this is me, a vegan saying all of this, but um, that's another story. Um, in terms of Cheetos, though, the funny thing about Cheetos um, is that they offer different types of flavors that you don't have here. So there were things like prawn, shrimp, um, and on and on. I can't remember all the flavors that they had, but they were, it wasn't just cheese. the cheesy kind of flavor. I think they, they did have it at the time, but there were other flavors. We yeah. have weird Cheeto flavors here in Israel, actually. Do we really? Yeah, my, my kid eats them. We have ketchup flavored Cheetos. Oh. We have, uh, and, and it's not even good ketchup. It's like that, like it's Hunt's. synthetic it's Hunt's ketchup. It's, it's not Hunt's. It's not Hunt's. Hunt's. It's worse. Uh, and then there's uh, pizza flavored Cheetos. Yeah, which are not bad. And and then corn flavored Cheetos, which they are essentially just corn. not it's just not flavored, flavored. Cheetos. So it, you said so. I just want to recall something when you said the sweet potatoes, the the boiled sweet potatoes of the street. I don't know. I don't know how much time you spent in Israel and when, but when I was a kid growing up here and probably until my teenage years, you could walk down the street and just buy, there would be boiled corn vendors. You still see them sometimes in Jerusalem in the winter. I, I haven't seen it in a long time. It's something I never understood because even though I grew up in Indiana and I grew up in kind of on the borderland of rural Indiana, I never really liked corn. Like certainly not cooked corn. I, I, I love corn. You didn't like corn, did you say, Dan? Yeah, yeah. it was never like a thing. Oh, I love corn. corn. It's delicious. Unless, you know, I, I've had it straight from literally, not even the farm, straight from, like, I picked it, an ear of corn, sure. ate it in the field. Yeah, it's good. That's good. But, like, cooked corn, and then, like, anytime it's, you know, it's processed, I just don't care for it. And uh, corn tortillas is different. But um, I never got that. And, like, you'd walk down, I guess it's, it's, you know, when Israel was a little less developed, and it's kind of a sustenance food. And, like, okay, you walk down the street, and what am I going to snack on? A ear of corn you know it's just kind of like <laughs> doesn't exist anymore well, how long have you been a vegan sorry how, how long, long a vegan? vegan um i guess two and a half years something like that okay so you weren't a vegan when you were living in China? i was not no no what uh how big was the food culture shock it, wh where when you first came to china from from the states as a college student or however old you were. oh the, well <laughs> Well, because I don't eat pork, that was, a, a, I lost 17 pounds. I mean, and I was, it, those days I was thin to begin with. Um, it was, it was, I mean, it was different. The, the food in China is different than, generally speaking, than the, the so-called Chinese food that you get here. Sure. Let's put it that way. But I will say things like dumplings, you, you, the dumplings in China are second to none. Because especially in Beijing, because for me, it's all about the skin of the dumpling that really makes it. Mm -hmm. If that skin is smooth and thin and has a certain kind of texture, that's chew on it that you have to like, right? Yeah, I don't like it chewy. I like it. It has to be there's a certain fineness that it has to that it has to be. But um, but some of the street food in China is fantastic. There was something called uh, Tianjin Bing, which was originally from Tianjin, and it was uh, this was pre-vegan, of course. So it was like an egg. It was like an omelet, a flat thing. And then it was stuffed with all kinds of wonderful vegetables and spices. And then it was made into a crepe. So that was good. The dumplings were good. The sweet potatoes were good. Um, were, and were I loved keeping, it. Were you keeping, I'm sorry? Were you like trying to keep kosher in a way when, when you were there? Yeah, I, I didn't eat... Um, 
I did eat full disclosure. I did eat, um, you know, chicken and beef, but I, but I didn't eat pork or shellfish or anything like that. Or other animals. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I would. So, well, I was one served dog. Um, when I was, um, this was, uh, in 1986 or 87. And I went with my boss at the time to China and, um, we were invited. There was a, a banquet in at the Great Hall of the People in honor of her. And it was with um, the hostess was um, Kang Keqing, who was one of the Long March um, uh, revolutionaries. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so she was still living anyway. And so she hosted my, my boss and I went. And it was only, there were probably 10 or 12 of us around the table. And they served a small dish. And I remember it had grapes on it. And it looked like brisket. And the gentleman next to me um, in his broken English said, um, we toast each other and then we eat dog. And I said, no, we don't. And I just left it there. So oh, I can, that's, you know, people talk about I'll eat anything and I keep kosher. And even before yeah. I kept kosher, like you, you know, I would, I would eat chicken and beef anywhere, but, yeah. but nothing more than that. And, and I cannot conceive of eating dog. I have a dog. Yeah. I've had dogs for years. I think, like, I think that if I remember correctly, and you can you can you know, let me know if I'm wrong, from from my knowledge of my very, very minute knowledge of China, that was probably more of a sustenance thing in a time when they didn't have yeah. a lot of protein to go around than a Chinese people eat dog sort of a thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that it's evolved to a point, although I will say when I lived in Beijing, there was a restaurant very close to where I lived in the center of Beijing that used to serve dog. I, I used to go to that restaurant, but I obviously didn't order the dog. But um, well, look, we, we've we've this is quite a rabbit hole into China. But I mean, you, you've traveled extensively to lots and lots and lots of other countries, uh, you know, starting from around China in in sort of and I, and I don't want to go too far into this, but you know, you're you're in China in, in this part of our story and you're you know, working in China and, and you've, you've lived and worked in a, in a, in a large amount of countries and, and done a, you know, quite a, a diverse amount of jobs. Um, can you take us to, to Singapore? How, how did you get to Singapore? Well, I was first in Singapore um, after grad school. Like I said, I studied international relations and I wanted to get to China eventually, but I wanted to get to Asia and I wanted to work in communications. And so I first was in Singapore. Um, I feel like this is your life. Um, I was first in Singapore in um, 1989. I was there 89 to 90. And I had a Rotary Foundation scholarship. So I was studying Chinese at the National University of Singapore. And then I moved to China to work for Young and Rubicam. And then I wanted to move to the US. But I, so I said, can you find me a job either in New York or in Europe? And at the end of my travels, I was traveling through Southeast Asia and they said, well, we have a job for you. And I said, great, it's in New York, right? They said, no, it's in Singapore. I said, what part of New York don't you understand? <laughs> and um, they, they flew me down there and properly brainwashed me. Um, and I said, you know what? This wouldn't be such a bad place to hang out for a year or two. Well, a year or two then turned into eight years. Wow. Uh, and so that's how I got to Singapore. Eight years. Eight years. Bro. Yeah. Well, I was there for so I was there for a total of nine years. Once before China, and then after China. Yeah. Was was Singapore today? It's a, a massively developed and, and modern place. Was it back then also? Um, 
Yeah, in 89, I mean, it, it was modern. And the funny thing about Singapore even today, so I left Singapore in 2005. Okay, I was there from 97 to 2005. And the funny thing about Singapore is that when people would go there for a couple of days, they would say, oh, it's just one big shopping mall, or oh, it's just this, or oh, it's just that. But when you really scratch at the surface, you really, it's still very, very Asian. And there's very much of an Asian sentiment there. And um, I was very fortunate. I was working in advertising, but I also had a radio show at the weekend. And then I also had my gigs on Singapore Airlines doing their in-flight. And I did other things there. I acted and wrote for you, a paper and stuff. How did you get a radio show in Singapore? It's, it's um, <laughs> I asked for, well, let me finish the thought though. So the point is, is that because I was like part of Singapore in a way, I was able to see Singapore in a very different light than I think that if you're just an American working there in banking and you're a member of the American club and all your friends are American or you just go there for two days, it's a very, very different experience. Um, there was a show, um, a jazz show on radio from uh, on one of the stations. It was the, um, happened to have been the classical station, but they had a jazz show on weekends, Saturdays, Sundays. And I was telling a friend of mine, I'd love to get back into radio because I'd done it in high school. And that was always my objective was to get back on air and to be on air. And she said, I know the uh, program director. So she introduced me. I made a demo and um, I was accepted. There were a couple of us that were rotating on that show, the jazz show. And um, again, looking at the calendar, and I just thought about this, actually. My first time on radio speaking was February 14th, 1998. Oh, wow. And I remember it was February 14th because I thought if I mess up, no, more, no one's going to be listening because everyone's going to be out celebrating Valentine's Day. <laughs> but they, they first train you on, um, they first trained me at least on classical because the pieces are so much longer that you don't have as much to talk through. And being a talker, they kind of yeah. would know that I needed to um, self-monitor. And then I, then I was rotated on the jazz show. There were three of us hosts and it was Saturday nights and Sunday nights. So they rotated us. And then the state, and then the show moved to another station and then they started a Latin music and lifestyle show. And so they asked me to host that because I said, I speak Spanish and I know the music. And so that was the show that I did for a long time. Do you actually speak Spanish? And know the music? I do. You, no, you I didn't speak Spanish on the show. I didn't speak. I, I, I didn't speak Spanish on the show per se. It was English. Um, but I did have a let's speak Spanish session during the show. Oh, yeah. Where'd you yeah. learn Spanish? In high school and in college. I took it. Yeah. Wow. You definitely have a radio voice. It's it's. When we first had a, I, I was on one of your shows, uh, Israel Cast, and that's yes. where we first spoke. And uh, I had listened to an episode of yours and uh, said, oh my God, he's got like the radio voice, right? And, uh, and it's crazy. That's how you actually speak. Like you, you speak with this like perfect radio voice. Like you were literally meant for radio and podcasting. This is what that's you That's very kind of you. you well, I want to say right back at both of you, because I think both of you sound really, really good on the mic. You're very easy to listen to. Thank you. So when you're doing like classical music and jazz music, is that like, you know, whenever I tune into the radio, I don't do this anymore, but it's like, and you're listening to Bach's fifth, you know, concerto. And is that like one of those? Yeah, it was, it was very, um, the, the classical, you had to sort of say the 
yeah, who was the composer, when it was written. And it was, you know, that was Sir George Schulte and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra recording of, you know, Beethoven's whatever. Um, and then you had to do, you had to do news and weather and traffic updates and everything else. But then it got looser. Well, with jazz, because that show is eight to midnight and that you can kind of do more freewheeling kind of stuff. And I used to have friends at work the next day and they would listen and they'd say, Stephen, you sounded a little tired by the end. And I, I said, yeah, well, it was like 1150 at night on a Sunday night. Of course I was tired, you know, but that was sorry. But then I did the, the Latin show and that was, I could kind of do anything I want. And the folks at the station couldn't have been more supportive. The, the, the station it's uh, Singapore's adult contemporary station, gold 90 FM. And they were just incredibly supportive and basically let me do my own thing. They would give me a playlist, which of course I never used. I always had a whole stack of my own CDs next to me. And I just kind of played whatever I felt like playing, what I thought people wanted to hear and so on. And they were just incredibly supportive. It was the best, I had the best time. And I will say though, some of my listeners, so I used to take dedications and requests and some of my listeners um, would chat with me over the phone while the music was playing and I'm still friends with them. That's, That's awesome. great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting how like radio has, it's become the medium of choice. If you've, you, if you convert it from, you know, it's source and radio into podcasts yeah. uh, in terms of like, there used to be the radio show before there was TV, people would tune into the radio show. I'm actually surprised. I'm actually surprised we are. it's We're back still- because, you know, and I, I, I don't know, maybe this is my own thought process that, you know, we advanced from radio to television, right? People used to sit around and listen to sports games. They would listen to somebody basically reading a description of a show or a movie on the radio. And then we advanced to television. And yet, I guess, I I don't know, maybe in a way it makes sense, but because people want things to do where their eyes are free, you know, whether for me it's driving or, or when I do the dishes or when I go for a long walk, um, it's made a comeback or maybe it never I, left. I, I would say that it's less about let's, let's call it. And, and this isn't what you were saying, but it's less about like reverting back to the older medium than it is kind of the dem- democratization of the medium itself. So for example, right. television became this thing that because of the way it was regulated, it was controlled by, let's say the FCC in the United States who gave it to the networks and then, then cable networks, you know, were, were, you know, evolved but there's a gatekeeper there. If you want to show on TV, you got to get through that gatekeeper. And not anymore. And not anymore. So, well, still in television, you have to get through the gatekeeper. But when did podcasts come up as a medium? It was around the same time that YouTube started ga- gathering a sure. lot of its its power. So you have these more more or less democratized uh, forms of media. And when I say democratized, I mean everybody has yeah, a chance to, to all, right? you know open yeah. open put put their stuff up. And and more and more we're we're not looking at uh, the mainstream media or mainstream television gatekeepers to be the people that select our programming. For no, but, us. but even with podcasts, you have you know the the wonderfully produced NPR type podcasts. Sure. And then you have what we're doing, and and you have which is wonderfully produced, my friend. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. But but you know, and you have people who are are, are off script. You have uh, uh, not scripted but very well planned shows like yours, Stephen. Um, you know, and you have all these different types and, and some are, have tons of investment and some, you know, are just yeah. completely bootstrap. And, and it's, 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 it, it amazes me in a lot of ways that this has made such a, not even a resurgence, but just it's, it's really blown up in the past few years. 
Well, I, 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 I want to build on what you just said, though, Benny, this whole notion of democratization, because I think um, that's one of the reasons why people love podcasts is that it's very accessible. You can listen to anybody from anywhere in the world with any kind of opinion, or if it's not opinion based, of course, on any subject, really. And it doesn't matter what that subject is. And I think that um, radio, um, at least commercial radio, has been, you know, it's, it doesn't have as much of a local feel, I think, as it did back in the day, where it's become very corporatized, mm -hmm. you know, versus, like I say, someone like me, for example, that was on air in Singapore, where I could just play whatever music I wanted within limits, right? Um, so I think that dynamic has led people to start listening to podcasts because it definitely fills a need. And you're not really subject to, you know, FCC regulations, really. Let me, let me ask you this, um, because we're, you know, let, let's call it like we're is, we're, we're not uh, nine years down the road in podcast land. We're, we're a couple of months down the road in podcast land. And you kind of start out and you, Dude, we're, we're like seven months. Yeah. We're seven into months this. in good for us. Congratulations. Because uh, you guys really, I take my hat out because again, most people do it for a month or two and then say, okay, this is it. It's too much work, but really, you know, call out to both of you for really keeping it going. Thank you. Thank you. We, we appreciate that. It's, it's really been a lot of fun for us. And I yeah. think just engaging with the guests has been terrific. We would love to do more things in person, of course, but the pandemic is really Made yeah. possible. But on, on the other side, you know, so we here we are talking to guests in America, such as yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if, if that wasn't the case, we would be much more local, uh, perhaps to to our detriment. Uh, I guess my question is this. Do because the because it's a democratized media and there's so much out there and there's there's such a large, you know, let's call it a market base of listeners to go after. Should do you or should podcasters uh, see themselves in competition with other podcasters, or do you feel that there's enough listeners to go around and you gotta just be you? Um, this is, by the way, a discussion that Benny and I frequently have right. whenever I see something and I'm like, oh, they, they're doing that already. We need to be doing that. And, and he's like, chill, we're not in competition. It's a little bit of all of the above because, on the one hand, I think you can have a show that is you can have a number of shows that are around a similar topic or theme but it's what does the host bring different to that show okay so i think that's really key because there can be a number of either israel focused shows or jewish shows for example in the in the space that you're working in the space that i'm working in with israel cast you know there there can be a number of those types of shows but again it's what are you bringing different to the party. So I think there's that. Um, the, the reality is though, the flip side of course, is I think the average person has seven podcasts on his or her playlist mm -hmm. at a time. And so you only have really enough time to listen to just so many podcasts. Right. And if for example, there's one that comes out once a week you can probably get to it. Like my show, our Israel cast comes out every other Wednesday. The one way ticket show comes out every other Tuesday. So I feel like that's kind of enough. I, I may go with the one way ticket show to every week for a while because I have a ton of guests that I have to interview and I just kind of want to release them because they're all really cool guests and I can't wait to, you know, get them out. Um, 
of course, I won't be sleeping for the next three months, but that's another story. Uh, so it's a little bit of all of the above. I think part of it is competition, but you know where the competition actually, I think, is coming from, and you just alluded to it, uh, both of you, is it's coming from, say, for example, the NPRs or the CBSs or the these big networks, if you will, that have their celebrity or their big anchors that are doing a podcast. Not fair. Pardon me? It's not fair. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, and they have all the, they have a, a, a staff to do the research. Mm -hmm. They have a whole team to do the editing. They have a whole team to do the marketing and on and on. And all the host really has to do is just sort of go there and, and, and just ask wow. the questions and just have the chat. Whereas in your case, both of you, like me, are doing everything. Okay. I, now, I for uh, Radio Lab can take as much as six months to create, to produce and, and research. And, you know, they do traveling. Oh, one show, one episode. They could take six yeah. months to put together one episode. Yeah. Whereas we, you know, on both the programs, and I know you guys are both homework guys, and it's clear in not only this conversation, but your other episodes, that I know that both you like to have just a conversation, but you know what you want to touch on, right? And there's an art of a conversation. And so clearly both you guys are homework guys. And I think it's not only a reflection for you, but also for the guest when the host or hosts have done their homework because it's a sign of respect. And I think it's also a sign of respect for the listener because you're going to get a better conversation if you do your homework, as you guys do. And, you know, I'm part of a podcast group and there are a lot of people that say, well, I just want to wing it and I just want to learn on the show and I don't want to have it so scripted and all the rest. But how do you know what to ask and what not to ask? I mean, I just said, I just interviewed Phil Rosenthal. Had I not seen Everybody Loves Raymond and had I not seen Somebody Feed Phil, would I know to ask him about his episode in New York where he went into Zabar's? Or would I know to ask him about him going to Modena, Italy, you know, and buying the balsamic vinegar there? Right. Or other questions. Well, clearly, clearly you have to, like you, like you said, you know, you have to do your homework about the guests that are going to be on the show. You have to know what to ask them. You also want to know where you want to take your interview because you yes. are in control of where the interview, or you should be, yeah. where the interview is going to go. Uh, I think we're, we're maybe... Uh, Dan and I, and I, and I won't speak for Dan because he's right here, obviously, but where, where Dan and I sometimes differ is that uh, I will let a conversation go in the direction that it would naturally flow. Uh, and, and I'm a little bit less, you know, we have to touch on this, this, and this. Um, whereas maybe you would, would sometimes want more to, and these are all good things. I mean, no, it's, I, it, the I, truth I'll, is, is that, is that I won't cause, stop a good conversation, right? but you know, if somebody did something or has something on their bio, I really want to talk about it, you know, and if I have to cut it off at some point. Um, but we've had we've had episodes that have gone three hours just because it's gone, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we we had a guest who, who was here. It was one of the last in-person episodes we did uh, before um, one of the shutdowns. And we actually went three hours and then spoke, I think, for a good another 30 to 40 minutes in my kitchen <laughs> after the episode oh, yeah. because we just – couldn't stop talking to this guy. Um, well, that I have to tell you, some of the best conversations happen after you stop rolling. One hundred percent. We've had yeah. politicians that come in here and afterwards, yeah. it's like, all right, so, so give us the real, the real scoop. Uh, and 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 that's kind of one of the that we'll say the 
without without implicating ourselves in anything. It's just like one of the downsides of having of having active politicians yeah. on the show. And we be, know, you know, you know, that's going to be the case. They, they, they can't speak, you know, totally off the cuff uh, as you might want them to. But if you if you get them after the show, they'll tell you what's up. Right. Um, I Some think, of the guests I've actually ridden the subway with after the show because okay. we either live in the same neighborhood or going in the same direction. And again, they just they they open up and it's really, it's, it's um, yeah, a lot of cool information. We've had in, and again, we haven't been doing this for very long, but we've had a guest who told us that being on our show was cathartic for him to talk really? about experiences. Uh, check check uh, it out. It was, um, um, it was, or, uh, I, I'm forgetting the episode number was a guest named Ray Holcomb. Yeah. Former, and, very senior FBI agent, anti-terrorism task forces, the guy was chasing Al Qaeda around the world before, during, and after 9/11. And he actually lost a lot of friends and and his uh, kind of his mentor slash commander uh, in 9/11. Uh, in 9/11, mm -hmm. died, and he hadn't talked about these topics, I guess, in many, many, many years in, in such an in-depth way. We we were kind of directing him to go to different places that I don't think regular people or or people in his day to day bring him to to think about. Uh, and he kept saying on the show, like, "This is, you know." Can I can I talk about this? Can we? Are you you know are you are you guys okay if I get into this? This is really cathartic for me. Go for really, it, yeah, absolutely. It was, it, was it was fascinating conversation. Um, I want to check that one out. I didn't hear that one. It, it really was, and and I think that that's for for me at least in the very short amount of time that we're doing this, it is one of those life changing moments where you kind of look at what you're doing and you say, you know what, maybe I don't have, you know, I, I still want to grow. We want to have more more people listening to the show, but. You're creating this network of guests that are, you know, you're the 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 you're the intersection between all of these people. They've all come together and they've they've spoken to you and and you've maybe brought them places where you've, you know, you you've meant something to them, uh, and they've meant a, you know a hell of a lot more to you, uh, at least in 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 this particular case. Um, but you know, it is meaningful. It's it's. You know, the interview is is a very, very meaningful process, I think, both for the interviewer and the interviewee. Well, I think you, you can spend an hour or more with another human being and speak with them without developing some kind of connection. Right. And some are stronger than others and some will last longer than others. Um, I've developed some wonderful friendships from the guests that I brought both on Israel cast as well as on the One Way Ticket show. Um, and you know, I, I really treasure the friendships that I've developed and also just the knowledge truly that you get just from doing the research and from speaking to them and how the, the conversations really change one. Uh, but to your point also, Benny, about being, you know, a link, I, I look at it as many ways as like glue because I've introduced a lot of, I've introduced, um, guests to other guests, you know, some people say, can you introduce me? I just, you just had XYZ person. Can you introduce me to them? And of course, for everyone in earshot of this, don't send an email without getting permission from the person that you are asked to do the, do the intro to, because sometimes they don't want to be introduced. Right. Sometimes right. Private people or, or it's exactly. You have to do that very, you know, you want to be sensitive sure. and you also don't want to just give people's emails out willy nilly. But I've I've done a lot of introductions and um, it's really cool when you can bring people like that together, because that, I think, is a sense of responsibility. It's not only about communicating and creating this network 
while people are listening, but what happens afterwards and how are you impacting and influencing people as a result of your show? How do you get your guests? I bribe them. You bribe them. Okay, just like us. Okay. Chloroform. Well, Dan actually just. I didn't quite them. get the bribe from both you gentlemen yet, so I'm waiting for my envelope or the check. Maybe is in the mail. I don't know. The pandemic. We can't leave Israel. We're you, stuck. You here. haven't heard okay. how the Israeli mail system is. Yeah. The postal service here. It's on, right. it's on the way. Uh, right. Jokes aside. Um, it's it's again it's a little bit of an all of the above in terms of how I get my guests. Some are cold calls because they're people I just really want to bring on the show. And it can be cold calls to them or cold emails, if you will, or to a publisher or, you know, just that kind of a thing. Sometimes it's somebody that I know knows somebody, which there's a footnote to this. So I will ask them if they would kindly make an introduction. And then of course, sometimes I'll go to lectures, well, pre-COVID of course, but I would go to lectures or events and run into either somebody there or a speaker, and I would approach them and ask them. And then the reality is because I live in New York and there's a lot of really interesting people in New York, I have run into people on the street or in various locations, engaged them in conversation and have invited them on the program. So it's really, it's, it's literally all of the above. The one footnote that I have, and I'd love to hear your experience for both you gentlemen and really anyone that's uh, joining us now via Facebook slash Zoom, um, this whole notion of being very careful and cautious in terms of who you ask for an introduction, because I will not ask anybody for an introduction. I feel like I have to know that person really, really well enough. And there, there isn't going to be like a, a tit for tat or a quid pro quo or anything like that. And or like I, or said a different way, like I owe them something afterwards, right? right? Or they're going to get credit and will remind me of that credit for the rest of my life. So I want to hear about um, both your experiences in terms of getting guests. So I guess my background before uh, this podcast was, uh, and still is kind of uh, managing content for a, a tourism company here in Israel that does a lot of educational tours uh, of the type where you you know you you bring a, a delegation of politicians or a delegation of students or a delegation of business leaders mm -hmm. or you know et cetera to the country and then in in the course of that you're meeting all kinds of figures and agents of change and you know innovators and politicians and wh whomever okay uh, and because of that I've been exposed to a broad amount or a broad variety of different people here in the country mm -hmm. um, higher profile high high profile people and regular people and you know, people of all different walks of life. And it's kind of uh, put me in positions where I've had to get over any sort of initial fear of butterflies of, of you know, making an ask, uh, you know, asking or reaching out to somebody and seeing, you know. I'm a, Benny, I'm going I'm to stop you and coin a, a phrase. That making I just, an ask? Making an ask of yourself. They, don't make an ask of yourself. <laughs> uh, but for real, though, it's it's. I don't have a fear to reach out to people, um, you know, whether that person is the prime minister, who's definitely not going to come on the show, but I'll reach out to him. Or if it's, uh, you know, somebody that works at the Weizmann Institute, we're in Rehovot right now, of course. So, you know, maybe it's a scientist that works at the Weizmann Institute that's developing some sort of a, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I've, I've just for many years been, you know, kind of in the business of sending emails and reaching out to people and seeing if they'll meet with me or with my clients. So this is kind of similar in that way where, you know, 
I guess the only difference is that in many of those cases, my clients are paying them money to sit down with them. Whereas here, yeah. I'm kind of just asking them to sit down with me and to, and to go on the record, of course. And some people don't want to do that. Um, but for those that do, I mean, people are people. Uh, and, and those of, you know, those out there, and I, and I haven't had this happen yet, but I'm sure that one day it will. And I'm sure, you know, based on what you just said, that it may have happened to you. I've never had somebody that said, okay, I'll be in your show, but what are you going to do for me? Um, you know, that's kind of maybe a, a figure that I wouldn't want to have on the show because yeah. I don't want to have some, I'm not doing this for, you know, any sort of transactional, you know, reason. Uh, I don't want anything from these people other than to kind of sit down with them and have a conversation and to pick their mind. I'm not going to, you know. Um, but then, of course, there's like, you know, the real politique that comes with it as well, which is, you know, there's probably some people who are not going to, listen to somebody that they've never heard of, you know, reach out to them and try to get them to come on a show. And if you have somebody that they do recognize that, you know, is going to say, Hey, you should really talk to my, you know, my friends, Dan, you know, Dan and Benny, they'll, they'll be more willing to, to do it. Um, yeah. What about you, Dan? Yeah, no. Um, I, I guess I've been in kind of this world for a while now of speakers and authors and writers um, here in Israel, at least in the, in the Israel scenario where, first of all, I know a lot of people who are just, um, interesting and knowledgeable people. Um, and, and I find it just fun. I, it's, it's so much fun for me. People will say, Hey, do you want to come on my podcast? Like I, I love being able to say that not from an egotistical uh, point of view, but from the fact that I have now a platform um, yeah. and I can invite someone to have a conversation on air for hopefully, you know, other people, other people to enjoy. So I find that fun. I haven't had, um, I, I've had only good experiences when I've asked people to introduce to potential guests, although a lot of them um, turn it down. A lot of them turn down. We've had people turn down the show for many reasons. Either, you know, we're not famous enough and, and they're very busy and important. That's fine. We've had people um, turn down the show uh, based on optics type reasons that we're two men. Uh, and, and Well, they didn't turn it down, but... Uh, um, it's difficult for them show, to... Show, the hesitant. Um We've had people not want to talk for two hours or, you know, the long form that we do and, and say, what, what could I possibly talk about for that long? Yeah. Um, we've had, what have we had? I was, I was going to say, get Dan, Benny and Steven in the room and there can be a lot to talk about for more yeah. than two hours. Exactly. <laughs> and um, then what, else, and I, sorry, I interrupted you. Carry on. No, no, it's, it's um, you know, we've had people like that and we, I've had people, this was, this was fascinating. I, and I'd be glad to hear your experience on this. We seem to, and maybe just it's us because we're two guys. Um, and and I, I never thought about this, but kind of looking back, now that I'm in a place where I'm regularly trying to get guests, uh, I find it harder to get female guests. And, mm -hmm. and we try to make a very conscious um, or is it conscientious uh, effort to, to both have uh, uh, men and women. I'll, I'll say that, I'll, I'll give you this. We're very cognizant of the uh, of the ratio of men to women. We, we really try to be, we don't want to do what people call a mantle, you know, where it's just men, men, men all the time. Um, we try to allow a platform for uh, all political views, all religious viewpoints, um, and, and certainly, um, you know, uh, for, from a gender standpoint, we're, we're not counting exactly and saying, okay, we had this, now we have to have this. We had that, now we have to have this. But we do try to make, we're very cognizant of it um, because, you know, 
we, we should be pushing ourselves out there and, and, and not sitting in, in what it turns out might be a comfort zone that we weren't even aware of. And we have, uh, we, uh, I can't speak for what reality is, but we have seemed to have a harder time getting women to come on this show and just fully open up and talk. And I had an interesting talk with two women, uh, two friends of mine, both PhDs, both brilliant women, career women. And they said to me something very similar. Um, and that is women, professional women oftentimes tend to second guess themselves and that it's much harder for them to come on this kind of show and just talk as opposed to presenting a subject that they're an expert on. That's something else, but to just come on and talk and be themselves. And I personally reaching, I've I even reached do, out do, to, do, do you buy that though? I, it's not for me to decide. No, but like when you hear that, do you, do you think like, Oh, that's, that sounds, yeah, I can see that. Or does I it sound to you like, that. yes, I can see that because you know, I would be glad to get your take because you've been doing two shows and you've been doing them for a lot longer. Do you find it harder to get women to come on your show than it is to get men to come on your show? Um, let's just say that out of the women that I've tried to get on my show, maybe because they've been so high profile that those women have been difficult to get on. Mm. Okay. Um, I'll say with Israel cast, we've had, um, just sort of like thinking off the top of my head, you know, probably about 50, 50 ish or so we've had some amazing women on that show. One of my favorites was, um, uh, uh, Nitsana Darshan Leitner who wrote the book Harpoon, the lawyer who is just amazing. That was a real page turner of a book. I don't know if you remember. And, you know, we've had everyone from her to, um, Jamie Geller, the chef, who's lovely to, to just so many really, really accomplished women. Um, uh, of course, Fleur Hassan Ahum, your friend, Dan, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, who was, I would love to have her back because I thought she was absolutely outstanding and just the loveliest person really to speak to. So I will say on Israel cast, we've had a really, really good balance of, of men and women. On the one-way ticket show, it's really funny you're bringing this up though, because just before I um, came on air with both of you, uh, I happened to have been listening to a podcast and I'm not going to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass and I don't, I don't believe in Lush and Hora. Okay. And so um, I don't want to have to say an, an extra al this coming Yom Kippur for this Lush and Hora. So I won't mention the name, but there is a woman podcaster that I happen to have been listening to who I've been trying six ways from Sunday to get on my show, radio silence I've gotten. And she had a guest on her show who I've been trying to get on my show for months, but I was told by the assistant to that particular guest that she can't do it. She's just way too busy, way too busy. Yet she's been on that other show two times already. Mm. Okay. So so what we agreed though, and this is a little bit of a footnote to go back to something what I think you were starting to allude to is that if someone says no, sometimes it means no now, but it doesn't mean no in the future because I've had guests, men and women, uh, but particularly, and I will give him a shout out. um, I don't know if you know who Mo Rocca is. 
from yeah, CBS. Yeah. Okay, Mo's been on my show. There cannot be a nicer guy in the world and so incredibly clever. And when I first reached out to him, and that was a cold call, I physically went to CBS and I went to the front desk and I said, uh, can I speak to someone at um, CBS Sunday morning? They connected me to a producer. I told them that I wanted to invite Mo on the show. They gave me Mo's agent. I reached out to Mo's agent. And Mo's agent, I can't remember if it was Mo or Mo's agent at the time, said, I would love to do it, but can we revisit this in about six months because I'm just too crazy busy? And I said, sure. I yeah, reached out fine. again, right. and to his credit, he said yes. Yeah, and, and that's fine. Yeah. Okay, and, I, and that's and that's fine. But I will say, though, the, the, women, the, the women versus the men, I have also had an issue, though, I will say, um, with... Um, there are also very high profile people in the African-American community that I've tried to get on and that I've had problems with getting on with them saying yes. Do you have a guess? So, pardon me? Do you have a guess as to why? I don't know. I think in one case, this person in particular probably, um, even though I had run into this person and I asked this person and he said, here's the name of my booker, please call her. And I'd been really after this person and I, it, it, I have no idea. I don't want to speculate. Um, so that's another issue that I've had. The other issue I must tell you, and this I feel almost very comfortable naming names because they're politicians. <laughs> Some it. of our politicians, our senators have been horrible to get. Their staffs have been disorganized, horrible. They don't get back to you. They forget. They lose things. They lead you on down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I could definitely give you names. I'll give you names afterward. They have been the worst, I will say. Absolutely the worst. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, sometimes people would want to come on a show because, dare I say, if they have a book out or they have something to, something to promote, it's good publicity for them. Sure. You know. Yeah, absolutely. No, people who have books out, I think, have been easiest to get because they're looking to promote something. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I'm just I, I go back in mind and I don't know if it's a coincidence and I'm connecting it to the conversations I had with these two uh, female friends of mine. But I, we reached I reached out to this woman um, who, who I was told she was fascinating. I know she has a public speaking background, so I know some people just don't like to publicly speak. And and um, I said, I heard you do such and such and such. I don't want to name names. And um, and she said, yeah, I said, that's fascinating. I'd love to get you on my show to, to talk about it. But let's, you know, kind of I do, you know, we always do this kind of pre-call just to, I don't want to call it like an, an audition, but but it's kind of like an audition just to see if they're the right fit. Yeah. And, she, and this woman kept going back to, um, yeah, no, I'm not very interesting. Maybe you want to talk to this person or that person. And no, I was like, no, I want to talk to you. Let's let's talk. Like why? And I'm like in my head, I was like, why don't you think you're interesting? Like, yeah, it was like a weird psychology. Like she yeah. could have just said, no, I'm not interested to be on your show. She but didn't, and she, said, no, she, took it, she took it a step further to the, I don't think I'm interesting. And, and we ended up talking for half an hour. I thought she was fascinating. And she, and, and at the end of the day, we left it as let's revisit it in a few months and, and see. And, uh, and and maybe we'll come back to it then. I actually want get, to get to um, some of your travels beyond uh, China and Singapore, uh, because this is incredible. You've, you've visited some crazy places in the world. Um, and, and first of all, I'd love to hear what some of the crazier places you visited are. And what does it mean when you visit a country? Because, you know, 
I went to Switzerland for a day on a business trip. I count that in my travel, but that's not really travel. Well, what does it mean when you when you travel to these places? And what's it like to fly an Air Corio? It was quite nice, actually. Is what is that? Air it's Corio. a very clean airplane. I'll let you explain to Dan what Air Corio is. <laughs> uh, well, it's the Korean. It's the North Korean National Airline. <laughs> so I flew uh, from from Beijing to Pyongyang, and then Pyongyang back to Beijing. I'll be an aviation geek for a second, which is another hat I don't think you've seen me wear. <laughs> oh Air wow, that's Air cool. Air Corio has the largest existing fleet uh, of. Tupolovs in, in, air, in airline in airline service of uh, of Soviet built aircraft shocked which is for aviation geeks a really big treat they actually do the tour operator and I don't know if you went with the, uh, the tour or how you went there and you'll you'll get into that but he snuck across they, the border on no it's donkey. this is legit this is legit they actually promote a tour a special tour for aviation geeks in North Korea where people will go to North Korea they have zero interest of North Korea they just want to fly on these aircraft. And they'll Soviet go for like two aircraft. weeks to fly on planes where it's like this is the only, you know, this Illusion 27.5 or yes. whatever left in the world. And they want to fly it. And they <laughs> want to experience it or whatnot. So I've been on those Illusion jets and some of them are just not well maintained. How do you get to North Korea? Why do you get to North Korea? Well, I, um, I went in 2012 and I had always wanted to go because having studied China and Marxism, Leninism, and socialism, and just this innate curiosity, I wanted to go. And so it was actually very easy. There's a, there's a company called the Corio Group, which is out of Beijing, and they've been running trips and other events. There's the Pyongyang Marathon. They'll help you, you know, run the Pyongyang Marathon. And they've been doing this for 25, 30 years, I think, actually. Um, in any event. And so I went in 2012 in, um, it was August of 2012. That's, so that was the last time I was in Beijing actually. And, uh, it was fascinating. We flew, I flew to Beijing and then they, I went with a group and, um, the group was really large. So they divide you up into different buses, you know, different groups and you go to different parts of the country. You go to the DMZ. Of course, you're you're, you're taken through Pyongyang. You go up to um, the northwest. Or the trip that I went, you can you can go to the western part of the country, and then when the trip was over, um, they were taking the train from North Korea back into China, and then to a Chinese city called Dandong, and then back to Beijing. And because as an American, they don't allow you to take a train across the border, I would have to fly into China to the city Dandong. And I said, I don't want to do that because I have no interest in going to Dandong. I said, as long as I have the visa, can I stay in North Korea and then see another part of the country that either few foreigners go to or that certainly we're not going to be going to on our trip? So I agreed with the choreo group. So they had two minders for me. One was one of the minders, the, the guides that we had on our trip. And then the other one was a young woman who was in her early 20s who spoke perfect, perfect English. Okay. American accented English? It was, it was just, per, it was like uh, American English, just perfect English. And we went to the eastern part of the, the country to Wonsan, uh, which is on the coast. We had the best time. I had so much fun with them. And then we drove back to Pyongyang. I went to a workers collective there. I went to a big 
um, uh, a summer camp for boys. We did all of these things that I wanted to have a little bit more of an experience that was a non-touristic, shall we say, experience, although everything in North Korea is all planned anyway. So no matter what they're going to show you. So I said, I want to see a hospital. So we went into a hospital, but it was the show hospital that they take you to. Why did you want to see a hospital? Pardon me? Why did you want to see a hospital? You know, Benny, every country I go to, I always like to see a hospital. Part of it is maybe genetic and the fact I come from a family of doctors. But the other thing is, is that I like to go to places where there's daily life to see how medical care, how someone goes to a doctor, you know, what kind of medical care they have. I like to go to schools. I like to take the subway. I've been, as you know, I've been to Iran. And one of the things I wanted to do was to go to art academies. I went in the Tehran subway. In Cairo, I went in the subway. I like to do things that you that's more than just a museum or more than just where all the tourists go. It's where daily life happens. So we went to a museum. We went to a hospital. I'm a big architecture fan. And Pyongyang has a whole architectural institute. So I wanted to see that. And I was able to speak with some of the architects. Actually, North Korea has a very big film industry. And so I wanted to see, actually, uh, Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il was a big movie buff. And I have one of his books on movies here. Had I known we were going to go down this, uh, take this part of our conversation, I would have grabbed the book and then shown it it to you. Pardon me? Go grab it. Is it on the shelf near you? It's... It's going to take a moment for me to get to. Do you want to hold on one second? Yeah, we'll hold on. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> hold on one second, folks. That there's a great, uh, I believe it is a, it's either Radio Lab or This American Life. It's recent, um, in the past, you know, year or two, uh, about this that Kim Jong Il, uh, who was obsessed with American cinema. So I've heard, like obsessed, like he yeah. had um, legit. He had the largest collection of pristine. I'm just explaining. Oh, hold on one sec. Yeah, yeah no the, worries. The largest collection oh, no, of pristine American films anywhere in the room, in, in the world. Uh, I'm just explaining that Kim Jong-il was a, there it is, the art of the cinema. Hold, hold it up a little more. He was okay. Can you see it? Yeah. with American cinema. And in fact, I was explaining that there's a recent, I believe it's Radiolab or This American Life episode where they're talking about his obsession of American cinema and how he has one of the, or had one of the largest screening rooms of film uh, anywhere in the world. The largest, you basically had every movie ever made right? Uh, yeah. that was sourced for him. And then they would kidnap South Korean actors. Yeah. And there was the story of how there was a couple, like a South Korean actor couple they got divorced, and but they acted in movies together, and he remembered them. So we kidnapped both of them, and made <laughs> seriously, and made them make movies together. And they found each other. That like, wait, you're here? What are you doing here? Oh, you're here too. You're yeah. Here. And they had to survive together to get out to make movies for Kim Jong. To make a long story short, he, they he, they basically convinced him like to make your movies better, you're going to have to do this, that, and the other, which ultimately oriented him to put them in contact with Western scenarios. And one of the movies was that they were going to go do the movie shoot in Geneva in Switzerland. And he let them go. And then they defected when they were in Switzerland together. And that was the end of the story. Sorry. Uh, let, lesson. Kim whenever whenever you're going to kidnap people to act in your movies, don't let them go. That's He, he, he had a soft spot. He what, wanted his movie uh, to be authentic. What? As much as you could get a sense of it because you were 
minded basically yeah. by, by the government and that they curate absolutely everything. Um, what was the show that they put on? But more interestingly, did, were you able to get any glimpses behind the curtain, so to speak? Um, before I answer that, I have to um, address the word the show, because one of the reasons why I went there at that time was to see the Ariang Mass Games. Are you familiar with what that is? Those are, those are, I'm sure you've seen pictures, Dan, or video. Um, those are those big events that happen in stadiums where they have formations in the stands where people hold up cards and then it turns into a mountain and then a river and then photos of the great leaders, uh, the, the great leader and then the dear leader. And then they have all kinds of formations done uh, on the field. I'm looking at okay. And so I, you're showing that for, for our podcast listeners right now. I'll, I'll make uh, sure to put this in the show notes. Link yeah. Pictures that. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to see it in North Korea. Or but in answer to your question about going behind, you know, oftentimes people think of North Korea as just truly, truly her hermetically sealed. Yeah. And there were little things that I noticed that made me realize how it's not hermetically sealed. And I'll give you a little bit of a laundry list here. The first was we were told to bring in things like um, cigarettes chocolate, perfume, face cream, those cosmetics, those kinds of things that our guides, that we can give our guides as gifts so then they can use those to trade uh, because they use it like currency. So say, for example, I have cigarettes and you're a plumber and you need to come fix my sink or something, I'll give you a pack of cigarettes. So it's, it's this barter system. So is it really hermetically sealed from that perspective? No. The other thing is there were a few little things that I saw. One was I remember going to see a performance and they had a little kiosk there that they sold drinks, you know, water and that. And I remember there was a small box there that, that someone kept their money in and it had all these Disney characters on it. And I thought, okay, someone got that in some way. And then from a Disney theme perspective, uh, so I had these two minders. One was the gentleman, the other was this young lady. And we actually had a wonderful time. We were laughing and just, we were just people, you know. And at one point we were talking about movies and I said, well, there's an American film director and I really like his films and his name is Woody Allen. And she said, oh, I know Woody. I said, really? She said, yeah, that's Woody from Toy Story. <laughs> and I said, you mean you saw Toy Story? And she said, yes. She said, we see all those films in our English class to learn English. Mm. Okay. So that was one little crack. And then another really interesting crack. I don't know if it meant anything or what, but it still stands out for me. I remember it was one of the first two days I was on the trip and we were at the hotel and I had forgotten something in my room and I went upstairs in the elevator and I saw, I was in the elevator with a young lady and clearly she was North Korean and we started talking and she said she was a guide. And I said, but you're not wearing your pin. 
Now, do you know what I'm talking about when I mean pin? Because in North Korea, if you look at North Koreans, they're all wearing pins of either the great leader, the dear leader, or um, the current leader, or sometimes a combination thereof. When we go into the, the uh, fifth election cycle, that'll be a requirement of all of us. Yeah. We'll have to wear our pins. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that the parties are changing all the time. Oh, that so wouldn't like, work out. You have to change your pin all the time. Wait, so but this is, this is done almost like, so you're given one, for example, maybe when you're born, when you enter the communist youth movement, when if you've won an award, you're given a pin. So Google North Koreans wearing pins and you'll see them wearing pins. So she was not wearing a pin. And for a North Korean not to be wearing a pin is sort of like, I mean, I'm not being sacrilegious in saying this. Sorry? Is it a statement of protest? No, for, I was going to say it's like a Hasidic Jew, not male Jew, not covering his head. It's I mean, a, it's, it, it's that sort of. Could it be a subtle act of protest? Like so that? what I did, so what I did was I said, excuse me, but you're not wearing your pin. And she looked at me and she giggled and she said, oh, I forgot. And so for me, I thought how um, sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, not revolutionary, but how, um, it, it just what, shows, you know, that the, the, there's like, a crack in the in the armor. A crack in the system, right? Mm. I'm thinking of the word, and the word's escaping me now. So those were those were sort of all little things that made me realize. And the other reality was we had, if I'm not mistaken, we had BBC and NHK, which is the Japanese broadcaster, in our hotels. The hotels were beautiful; they were very comfortable. Um, but North Korea, physically, physically, it's a beautiful country. I'm sure. What um, were there other Westerners? Did you or, or was it rare to see? Um, the only other Westerners were visitors like us. But, but how many? I mean, like hundreds, thousands, or like here? Um, essentially, if you went to North Korea, you essentially went with the group that I went with. So there were probably at any one time, I'm guessing a couple hundred, and that's it. The only thing is, though, when I went to Wonsan, which is in the eastern part of the country, away from the group, there were no other foreigners. I mean, I was, for all I know, I was probably the only one staying in the hotel. And the very sad thing, when we first got there and we, we um, got out of the little minivan and just needed to stretch our legs and we were in this uh, big sort of square, if you will, because everything is very monumental there. And there were two boys that came up to us and you have to ask permission to speak or ask permission to take photos. And um, I, <clears throat> I asked to speak to them and I asked how old they were. And one of them was 15 and he probably looked like he was nine. Because they're and all you, malnourished, right? Say again? Because there's a lot of malnourishment. There's a lot of malnutrition. And that was really rather heartbreaking. And on that sector of the trip, I could see the, um, you know, the other side, was it a awkward? bit of the other side of North Korea, just in the couple of days that I was spending there. Let me ask you this. You, you, you said you, you had developed a good relationship with your minder, uh, who basically was your friend on this trip. She accompanied you, you, you spoke. Yeah, both of them. There was a there was a man and a woman. Yeah. Did they at all? I mean, they must have seen this encounter, obviously. Did, did they do they have to say did they have anything to say about it? Do they 
all talk about this? I, I did not because I was very sensitive. I, I didn't want to cross that line with them because I thought, what, you know, what's it going to solve? What's it going to do? And I, I just didn't cross that line with them. I mean, so we, when we laughed and we joked, it was just about sort of daily life kinds of things. And you realize that these, these folks are just folks. They're just, you know, regular people. The interesting thing was you, you had to get permission to do anything. And in one particular case, as I just mentioned, we were in a, um, the, a worker's collective and there was a little shop there and I wanted to go and see what was in the shop. And, um, and the one guy, and it was closed. And then when we were walking back to the, you know, next to the shop, back to the van, I said, oh, it's open. Can we go in? One of the guides said yes. And one of the guides said no. <laughs> and so, you know, there, were, there wasn't a lot of consistency. Anyway, we ended up going in there and it was absolutely fascinating. And then when we first got back to Pyongyang, I was staying at a different hotel than, when I than where I was staying with the group. And the main train station, well, I guess they only have one in Pyongyang, looks like a Soviet train station. It was built, I think, in about 1960. And clearly, they just took the, the plans from Moscow and brought them over. So it's sort of like one of those wedding cake looking kind of, and it's actually quite beautiful. And I thought, I asked, I said, can we stop here and walk to the hotel because the hotel was just a couple blocks away. And they said, we need to ask our office. I said, okay. Later on, we drove by, said, oh, can we stop here? We need to ask the office. Okay. I think I must have asked three or four times before I got the clearance that we could drop down there and then walk back to the hotel. So, you know, it was what it was. And you go to these countries not to provoke, not to belittle, not to mock not to laugh you go because you just want to understand what's going on and to see something different and that's really sort of the tack that i take anywhere tell, tell us about iran yeah i was uh, before you do i was going to say do you find parallels between north korea and any of the countries that you travel to north korea in a way in a way what i saw at least right was like the china was before i got there the first time that makes sense Okay. Although I think it was probably even more strict uh, than China was before the first time. I mean, during the years that I was living in China, there was a lot of strictness. Is that, a, is that a word? Strictness? Sure. Yeah. We're coining words left and right here. All right. Good. Don't it was very, how's this one? It was very Mahmir. <laughs> very Mahmir. You know, it was very strict. So it would have, but just this whole notion of um, all the prop the propaganda out on the streets and everything else, it was, it was all there. So it was very much like the China that I first got to, but even the China before. Yeah. When were you in Iran? Iran, I was there in 2007. So, so 14, 13, I was there in November. So it was 13 and a, over 13 years ago. Yeah. Was this during the Khatami uh, era? Would have been during President Khatami's yeah. time. I think it was. Yes. Yes. Okay, so, um, first of all, what what drove you to go there, and then tell tell us about it? Yeah, I had always been interested in Iran. I, you know, just like I've been interested in many different countries. My next countries I'd love to visit. I have three in particular: uh, Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I very much want to visit because I'm a huge fan of art, archaeology, okay. history, literature, and to go back to something that you asked about at the beginning, Dan, food. 
And I must say, from a, a re, for reasons why I think anyone would go on a vacation or a, let's say a trip, a cultural trip, Iran really ticks off all the boxes when it comes to all of the above, plus the people. Um, and it's also photographer's paradise. Were, were you there? Uh, um, were you ever self fully identified as a Jew there? Yes. Um, so kind of the backstory of how I ended up going and how I went, because that answers really your question. Um, so there was a travel company that was going to Iran and I wanted to go on those particular dates. And I, try, I tried to get leave. I was working in advertising at the time and I was denied leave for that period. Well, it actually worked out for the best because I found another travel company that was going to Iran or doing trips at least to Iran. And they're out of Canada. The other one was out of the United States, but it just so happened. So I called them and I said, "Do you? how many people are signed up? Thinking that everybody and his brother is going to Iran, right? Thinking that these trips are full. What do I know? Um, I said, how many people are signed up to go to Iran? On I remember October 27th was the date. And she said, no one signed up on that trip, but if you wanna go, I thought, what do you mean no one signed up? Isn't anyone, you know, going and signing up? Anyway, so she said, if you want to go, we can arrange it just for you, a car, a driver, a car driver and guide, and it's going to be X amount of money. And it was a lot, okay? And I said, let me think about it because it's kind of a lot. A couple of days later, she happened to call me and she said, there's another gentleman that wants to go to Iran. He lives in Canada. Why don't you talk to him? And, you know, and then the price would, be like a normal price. So I called him, Carl, and we got on like a hot, so ended up, we ended up going, you know, separate rooms and the whole thing. But he was actually an artist. His wife was a nurse and he used to travel without her because she didn't want to go to some of these countries. We got along so exceptionally well. And the funny thing was he, he was not Jewish, but he actually lived on a kibbutz in Israel back in the late sixties. And he was also vegetarian. And I was vegetarian at the time. Well, I ate meat, but only kosher meat. So when I traveled, I was vegetarian yeah. and I ate fish. Okay. We got on so incredibly well. And he was also all about going to art academies and taking the subway and doing those more adventurous kind of things that are off the beaten path. So we got along exceptionally well. Uh, one of the things I always like to do when I take a trip uh, and I'm getting to the answer of your question because this is all germane to your answer, Dan. I always like to go a little bit before and stay a little after yeah. so that I can see things that aren't part of the so-called program to get adjusted and so on. So when I first got to Tehran, I told the guide, and that's a whole other story when you get in and they fingerprint you and the whole kind of thing. But when I first got there, I told the guide and it was a Friday. It was a like early hours Friday morning. So then when he picked me up, it was Friday around lunchtime. And I said, you know, I am Jewish and I would like to go to the Abrashami synagogue because I was told to go to the Abrashami synagogue in Tehran. And I sort of gingerly, you know, said that. And sure enough, he brought me to the Abrashami synagogue. I went to services that night. I met a family. They invited me over for Shabbos dinner. And then after Shabbos, the one of the sons came to the hotel and he gave me the names, names and numbers of his friends in the other cities that I was visiting that were Jewish. 
And I contacted them in each one of the cities. Oh, cool. I went to services in each one of the cities. And then when I was in this, so that was Shiraz and Esfahan. In Yazd, I was not there on Shabbos, but I did visit the Jewish community there through this, this one friend. That's really cool. Are, are you, uh, I'm, I'm very much a Jewish traveler. In yeah. The sense that, you know, I'll, I'll go anywhere. Like I don't, I don't need it to be a Jewish location, but if there's something Jewish there, I want to yes. see. Yeah. Um, is me too. that me too? Do you do that? I absolutely, absolutely. But what's it, I, what's, everywhere, everywhere. What's it like going to a country that is not just like, you know, opposed to Israel and, and, Many could claim is anti-Semitic, even if they they tolerate a small Jewish community. But I mean, it is one of the leading sources of anti-Semitism. They target, uh, you know, they've targeted Jewish communities and synagogues around the world, and they fund. You know, what what's it like going to a country like that? Uh, I mean, I I know the people aren't behind it, but you know, uh, you're being watched by this regime that that is, you know, doesn't like you to say the least. Uh, is it an unsettling feeling? It's not really because I almost feel like the joke's on them. Why? In other words, here I am. I'm Jewish. You you don't like my people, but it's like, what do you don't like about me? So I almost feel like you've let me in. So do you really hate Israel? Do you really hate Jewish people? In other words, it's like calling their bluff, if you will. Yeah. And it's And it's interesting also that even in a place like that, and maybe especially in a place like that, the Jewish people you know, act as a network. Like you said, you, you immediately received yeah. access to their world and they connected you to their friends and family in other cities. And all of a sudden, you know, you really felt the, and it sounds like a cliche, but it's not a cliche. You felt the togetherness of the Jewish people where now absolutely you're in this place and your, your family, essentially. Absolutely. You were just and a the, random guy from, from New York that, you know, they would never have thought, you know, you know let's get to my house for Friday night dinner with you know, what the hell. But no, you're yeah. Jew. You come into my house and have, have Shabbat. And you realize the notion of what it means, what Jewish hospitality means, welcoming guests into the home. And that to me is really beautiful, a beautiful thing. The other thing, though, going there is, you know, for me, it's not necessarily just going to see the sights and going to see everything that's beautiful and wonderful and all the rest. And every country has that. But it's also seeing those things which are difficult that are thought provoking. And when it comes to being Jewish, not that I want to see anti-Semitism, but if it exists, I want to be able to see it and see it in that environment. And so, for example, I remember particularly in Shiraz, I went, I didn't go to the synagogue, but I went to a service in someone's home because someone was saying Kaddish. And I sat next to a man who was one of the Shiraz seven, was it, oh, yeah. that were taken in because they were convicted of being Zionist spies and quote unquote, et cetera, in any event. But I remember walking by this big institute, I think it was a university, and there was, an, and I have a photo of it, and there was an Israeli and American flag drawn right next to each other in the entryway so you can step on it when you walk in and out. And I remember also being in, in Damascus, and I was in Syria in 2008, and I remember, and I might have mentioned this to you, Dan, I mentioned it to, uh, sorry to uh, you, Benny, I mentioned to someone recently. Um, I remember I was in old Damascus, and there was a little, um, shall we say, square, you know, like uh, in shops and 
things around a little square. And I remember seeing there was an Israeli flag that someone put in the middle of it because Israel and Gaza were fighting at the time. It was at the, it was in December of 2008. And I remember seeing that and people walking on it, maybe some because they just had to go from point A to point B, but nevertheless, they were walking on it. And I thought, gosh, this isn't right. So I kind of took my shoe and I started to sort of, you know, um, fold it up to move it to the side. And then I stopped because I thought this is probably not a good idea. Okay. <laughs> but the point is, is that I saw it. Okay. And I also saw how they covered that conflict when I was watching TV or you would pass by, you know, every other shop, there's a barber shop and they all had it on TV and they all had the Arab stations on and the Syrian stations yeah. reporting on it. And, um, you know, so, so to be able to see it in that context, it's, it's actually, you know, a bit enlightening, if you yeah. will. I always thought that that was very interesting. Like it's an interesting uh, quirk of humanity where you can travel to all of these different countries and at the same time, you can be struck by the commonality of humanity, how we're yeah. all people, we all love family, we all love to eat, we all like sharing our, our home with other people, or we all like, uh, you know, we're all proud of our accomplishments or our people's accomplishments. And we're, we're so similar, yet each culture, each uh, community kind of has their own narrative of reality. So the way that I, as, a, as an Israeli-American Jew sitting here in Rehovot and Dan, you know, and you feel about, you know, we're talking about Israel and the Jews, you know, feel about Israel's role in that conflict and how we're convinced of, you know, people throw this, 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 this uh, phrase out a lot nowadays, but like our truth, my truth, those Syrians are at the same way that I feel that that's true. They feel that that's true. Yeah. And that's all they know. And that's all that they know. Yeah. So. So there is this, and, and that's true of North Korea, is in, in, in the same light. I mean, you met people in North Korea, you were struck by their humanity, but they're patriots. They're North, a lot of them are very patriotic about their country, and they legitimately feel that they are, you know, the, the, the what's, what's the word here, the victim of Western aggression for, yeah. for you know, ages and ages. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it is strange that we have this, you know, we can be so so similar at this, and and at the same time, we can be so similarly stupid. <laughs> we well, it's not just stupidity. I mean, there's a lot of stupidity, but it's like we it get is. put it's into stupidity. we get to put into corners where we feel like, you know, um, you know, it's us versus them. And, and well, you know what bothers me most about that is um, in 2006, I was a young officer in the IDF, um, and just finished the Lebanon war, which was part of, there was a Gaza war that most people forget it. There was like another, the first Gaza outbreak of fighting that then led to the Lebanon war. And, and what's frustrating is not that that exists, what you said. What's frustrating is that there are people who manipulate this and um, that they manipulate it very cynically. And there are some places in the world where it's manipulated more, some places where it's manipulated less. So, but it's but there are some places where they just don't even try to connect it to the truth. And, and I remember Hezbollah did this very well. And we had on Avi Yorish on the show. By the way, if you don't know Avi Yorish, uh, get him. I, I don't know him personally, but I know his work very okay. well. Happy to introduce you. 
Thank you. Old friend, old friend. And, and he studied how Hezbollah does this through their television station. And this was groundbreaking because the world wasn't aware that the Western world wasn't aware that that there are people in the world and parts of the world that are literally cynically manipulating the media to mess with your perception of reality. And so I don't blame and I never blamed the average Syrian, right, who looked at us as evil um, because that's they don't have a choice. That's all they knew. Yeah. Um, especially when, you know, Internet wasn't a widespread thing and you could do your own homework and all that stuff. Um, it, but it's that people are willing to just manipulate reality um, for their political aims. By the way, we, we do it, too. I mean, it's not we don't do it to the extent that they're doing it. We, and we don't there's do no, it there's not an, cynical. There's not an evil, cynical part of it, but it is difficult in Israel to talk about the nuance that you and I understand. Of course, and that's part of why we started the show, right. to try to cut through that and get to nuance. We have, we have many friends uh, or people that we know mutually who, you know, it's you might as well be talking to uh, Dover Tzahal, to, to the, you know... Well, no, Dover Tzahal sticks to the facts. No, but... They, <laughs> <laughs> the idea to the of point of which they, there can be no there can critical be, thinking. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm constantly floored by this every day on social media. Um, but but I, I want to ask you, I want to go back to Iran and other places you've been. You've been to, you said Syria, you've been to Lebanon, Saudi Sure. Arabia. Can I just interrupt though for a second yeah, and just away. build on something you're saying is I think the, the issue is also that in those countries, um, you, you don't, you don't have uh, differing, differing opinions in the media. In other words, it's all either state-controlled media or state-run media, or it's party-controlled media. So you're getting one stream of thought, whereas you're not getting the diversity in other places. And I think that's actually a really, really big difference because in the United States, in Israel, you are getting diversity of, of opinion, especially in Israel. I think in the United States, and this is a whole topic of another conversation, but um, you're not getting the nuanced anymore. It's either left or right. And from my perspective, you know, 80% is all on the left. And there's only a small percentage that's on the right, which is being maligned. Anyway, just no, wanted to throw that out because that that colors people's opinion as well. Yeah, so it, it is definitely an issue. And, and, and maybe we weren't trying to get into this area, but it's an issue in that, you know, you find the world going to a place where people are no longer willing to listen to somebody that has a, a difference of opinion. It's, it's you know, we we're very tribal now. It's it's my yeah. side and, and your side. And, and there's nothing in, in between. And if, if you're on the other side, you're somehow and i'm going to take this to its worst place but like if you're one of them you're you know uh, this, i'm trying to say it without having to be no, I'll, to be vulgar, i'll give a, like, I'll give a you know, perfect you, you, i'll give a very recent example i was flipping through facebook as i like to do when i'm procrastinating and um and i ran across a friend's feed um that they were criticizing and attacking Trump's lawyer. So the, what's his name? Uh, the Orthodox lawyer that he has. Right David Schoen. David Schoen. Um, criticizing, attacking, and I would even call it Jew shaming, quoting scriptures, uh, passages from Tanakh, from the Bible at him um, of, you know, you shall not associate yourself with the wicked and all of these quotes. And, and I'm like, are we really doing this now? This guy's a lawyer representing a client who, whether you like him or not, and I've never been a Trump fan, is 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 uh, according to the way the American democratic system works? Right, do his day to, in he's court. To a, he's a, innocent a, until proven guilty. He's he's entitled to to be judged by a jury of his peers, 
and we're going to shame his lawyer now and yeah. say you can't even be his lawyer if you want to call yourself a Jew. Well, you've had and and I'm not a Trump supporter and, and I'm like what where have we gotten to now? By, by the way, you had Alan Dershowitz on your show and he gets this all the time. Yes. You defend so and so and you know in Trump. By the way, speaking of podcasts, you know he has his own podcast out now. Of course he does. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Should get him. But I the the thing that drives me crazy though with the media is and I will say the the quote unquote mainstream media is that clearly they're they're all they all have a liberal bent. I mean, oh, and it. they're little editorializing within stories and between stories and the chit chat that they have, for example, on morning television where people do get their news. Um, is just astonishing. And today, for example, I was watching, and I won't say which program, and um, I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but I will. Um, and they they used the word that Mitch McConnell um, did not vote to uh, impeach Trump or convict Trump based on a technicality. That was the word that they used, technicality. And I thought to myself, well, that, that so-called quote unquote technicality you're talking about that Mitch McConnell invoked happens to be according to Mitch McConnell, the constitution. So are you calling a little technicality? You can agree or disagree because there certainly have been lawyers that have said that he can be convicted and impeached based on the constitution. But just the notion that he used the word technicality and, you know, while referencing right. the Constitution, to me, was just astonishing. It's to take a huge point. step back, when I was in high school, and I want to get your both opinion on this, because you definitely have the pulse on things. Uh, I took a course sophomore year, it was called Modern World History. And the first assignment we had on day one was the teacher said, I want you to go to the library, and I want you to research the authors that wrote the book who they are, where they were from, et cetera. We thought that was the most insane thing to do. And this of course was before the internet. So you had to physically go to the library and do the homework. And that. we did it and he explained the reason why after we turned it in, he said, I wanted you to do that because you have to know the perspectives that the authors are coming from as they are talking about history. And if you know who the authors are, then you'll know why they're presenting the cases they are the way they are. Sure in history. And that was one of the most important things I ever learned ever. And I think that journalists should come on air and they should all say, this is the way that I vote. This is who I voted for. I want to make it plainfully clear so that we are all clear on where my editorializing comes from. Um, yeah, that's a really yeah. interesting uh, point. You know, we, I'll speak for myself here, but, you know, again, growing up in America for me in the 80s and 90s, um, it, you read history, and at least at the junior high and the high school level, um, you learn history as a given. This is history. This is a history book. This is what happened. This is, take this, this is what happened. And, and uh, I, I remember when people started reading Howard Zinn. Right? I was just thinking about Howard yeah, Zinn, by the and, way. And, and, and then when in college, uh, so I started college in the early 2000s. Um, you start, I started learning um, critical theory, critical perspective. Critical race theory? Not race necessarily, but oh. I took, uh, you know, literature from a, from a post-colonial perspective and, and things like that. The posts. And uh, no, look, we, we talk a lot about the post, post-colonialism, post-modernism, post. I'm waiting for the day where we're post-post. 
post post. Um, yeah, that's why I hate. I never knew we were even pre anything, let alone post. Yeah. I must have missed everything. It's it's like what did they call uh, what did they call World War One before World War Two? It's just the war. Right? It was the Great um, War. The Great War. Um, yes. No, but um, you know it has its place, and we talk a lot about this on the show and about perspective and and about how you have to have a solid foundation. Um, but but it is it's interesting to, to that that at the end of the day though history is written by somebody with a perspective, um, with an identity, with a background. And um, and you can tell two simultaneous stories that are both completely true and they both live completely alongside each other. Depends what what side of the story you're telling from. I can tell the story of the Israeli army and I can tell the story of of Palestinian villagers who were displaced in 1948. And they're going to be both true stories. That's fake news, right? <laughs> they're going to be both true stories, and it depends on what what side you're telling. And it's it's important to have perspective. Of, of how you view history. And it's interesting that your teacher gave you that because I think, uh, um, you know, that's, that's something we should be aware of at the risk. And this is where I think a lot of people go today that I think is problematic is to then immediately say, well, you're such and such. So I'm going to discount that story. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're doing what you said, to say, okay, this is what the victor said or the ruling class said or the majority said, this is the telling of events. Great. Now let's look at the minority or the loser or the um, the oppressed or, or whoever it is. Let's look at that or from a woman's perspective or something I had to research for a different project I'm working on. Um, what was it? Queer theory. I had to understand what queer theory was. Um, and, 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 and so you have to look at history and culture from different perspectives. At the same time, it enriches us and it enriches our intellect. The second you say, well, this one is valid, but this one's not, and especially a lot of people today are saying, well, the mainstream narrative is not valid, and only the, you know, the post-race or the post-gender or the post-colonial narratives, those are the valid ones, and the regular one is not valid. That's where I think we're getting into a problem. Well, as they say, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. And I've always believed that. Absolutely. Yeah. And they often are. Uh, Absolutely, Yeah. I, I find that it's, first off, I would hope that that's still happening today in schools. I would hope that today, across America, there are really great... And, uh, and the world. We have the listeners world. in 92 countries. Yeah, and there were, but particularly in... in Congratulations. In this, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I would hope that there's a teacher, that, a really good civics teacher, or a really good history teacher, or, you know, who's telling the, 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 his students or her students to go to the library or go online and to research, uh, you know, who the who the author is of their textbook and, and what's uh, causing them to be the way that they are. Um, my my concern is that there's probably places that aren't doing that anymore, or there are places that are saying, you know, don't listen to this person; they're wrong. You know, don't make up your own mind. This is the mm-hmm. way it needs to be. Well, uh, building on building on that, Benny, I think the way that that teachers' unions and schools are run these days here in many parts of the United States. I'm sure that they only have pre-approved books to begin with because uh, that's thinking- a big issue. In other words, if they find a book that there's a hint of fill in the blank, um, they're just not going to use that book. I was listening a couple of days ago to a podcast and I don't remember if it was, uh, I, doesn't matter who it was. They were talking about what you were mentioning before, how, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if 
journalists had to show or basically wear their agenda on their sleeves. And this person was saying how, um, you know, obviously people that are in the quote unquote mainstream media, you know, many of these programs are not objective news programs. They're cable news programs that are basically news entertainment and they have agendas behind them and they have political interests or corporate interests behind them. Uh, and perhaps he was saying that perhaps the media that we find ourselves involved in today of, of new media podcasts, uh, you know, uh, online journalism, these sorts of things, perhaps we're going to get to a point uh, sometime in the future where the way that you have a knee jerk reaction right now towards hearing about something like big pharma, where you automatically assume that there's some sort of a, you know, an interest behind it and you don't want to take it credibly, whether or not that's right or wrong. Uh, perhaps that's the way it will be where, where, where it comes to the ultimate verdict behind how people feel about the mainstream media, mm-hmm. how most people would look at something that comes off of the, 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 you know, the wire of CNN or, or ABC or, or Fox or whatever, and say, uh-uh, that's not, I'm not going to listen to that because that's so obviously being slanted by some sort of an agenda that, that it, there's no credence at all to, to take it seriously. Well, I'll, uh, I'll say, let me say two things about that. Yeah. Um, that wasn't my opinion. No, no, I understand. I, I, I understand. I, think, I understand. I want to say two things about that. And then I, I actually want to get back to, um, to travel as a vegan and as a Jew, because those are two things that, that are very interesting um, to me. But uh, I'll say this first, I think we're already there. I think a lot of people, whether they're more on the probably generationally speaking, absolutely. But whether they're more on the progressive side or on the conservative side, uh, the further you go to the sides, the more I hear that from people, Um, uh, you know, oh, the mainstream media, et cetera, et cetera. And and it can mean one of two things, depending on who you are. I can say um, having a background where I have a background and I spent some time in, in, you know, as an intelligence researcher and, and, and doing these kind of things. Um, as far as just the news wires, as just as far as reporting facts and, and even the simple analysis of ABC happened, this is what it means. The CNNs and the Reuters and the APs and the BBCs are, are actually very good. Um, they're not making stuff up. What's CNN though? The CNN world, the CNN in Atlanta, the CNN online. C- I mean, there's so many now. Is it the same? I, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, in, in general, like, they're not so bad. Even New York Times that so many people here in Israel and, and in the American Jewish community hate, they're really not that bad. Now, when you get into the opinion pieces, when you get into the talking heads, all that stuff, yeah, that's well, where... The New York Times, for example, and you were mentioning this to me the other day, the New York Times loved posting the opinions of people that are very easily suggesting that Israel should not exist as a country in its current form. Yeah, but, but when you're talking about just reporting facts, look, Isabel Kirshner, who sits here and writes... She writes good stuff. I mean, like, I, I read it. There's nothing factually wrong with what she writes. Uh, so maybe if that's all people are reading, if, if, if all you know of Israel is what's in the New York Times, you're going to get a skewed view in the sense that, oh, it's literally just the conflict and ultra-Orthodox. And, of course, the country is a lot more than that. But what they're saying is not factually wrong for the most part, right? It's maybe they framed the headline in a way that twists reality and then you have to read the whole article to understand what happened. But 
that's that's a whole different story. Well, with due respect to that, I would say that Barry Weiss did resign from the New York Times based on what she perceived as an inability of the culture of the New York Times. Perceived. She wasn't fired, by the way. She resigned. Did I say that she was fired? No, no, I'm just pointing. No, 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 I I was I may have said that in erroneously. Yeah, yeah. By mistake. She she did resign. But but this is a topic we could easily talk about. And we do talk about constantly. (laughs) I kind of want to get back to. Well, the other just final thing on that one, though, is that I find that outlets Two things. Number one is I find that if one really knows about a subject and one reads an article or hears a piece about that subject and you realize they didn't get it quite right. Okay. And, you know, we were talking about China earlier. One of the things that, first of all, drives me crazy is when people pronounce Chinese names wrong, like the capital of China is not Beijing, it's Beijing. The J is pronounced like a J or the leader of China is not Z. It's she, like S-H-E. So I think to myself, you're getting paid how much money and you're an anchor and you can't pronounce the name of the leader of the most populous country in the world, right? So, you know, that's one thing, all right? Um, But the other thing is, is that sometimes when you really know a subject and you realize they don't get it quite right, that absolutely infuriates me. And it's not because they're trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes or anything else, is that they just really did not get it 100% right. The other thing, though, is that when we talk about some of those media outlets, like every day I do listen to the BBC World Service, it comes as a podcast. We, we, we actually get it here at nine o'clock in the morning on WNYC here in New York, but I do listen to the World, World News podcast as a podcast in the morning. And I will say the BBC may be biased in certain areas to be sure. And I don't have to tell both of you. Having said that though, is that as we're having this conversation, there's the fallout from the coup in Burma or Myanmar as it's called. The BBC is really good in covering it. Mm-hmm. Or they're really good in covering those kinds of international stories Absolutely. that you're really not gonna get anywhere else. For a variety of reasons, they're very good at it. And so I do rely on the media for those kinds of stories and those kinds of international pieces that you just don't get at the networks here in the US or on the key cable stations. And um, they're also good for some lifestyle kinds of things that you don't get anywhere else. So as much as I don't appreciate the editorial of the New York Times, um, will I read it for other reasons to read the real estate section or uh, other sections in it? Or the metro section, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and, and like, you have to understand what you're listening to, and it's hard because we can only yeah. be knowledgeable on so many things. But at yeah. the end of the day, people trash the you know the mainstream media, but for the most part, you're not getting a made-up version of events. You're getting a reporting on what's happening in the world. Well, it depends. You're getting, and again, this is a conversation that we can have, but it's sometimes you're getting a distorted version of the events and you're getting a very cherry picked version of the events. And that's the part that drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's for sure. What I want to jump back to something you you mentioned at the beginning, what uh, (laughs) I have a feeling this could be a whole nother podcast. What made you go vegan? (laughs) Um, I guess it was a confluence of things and I think you'll both appreciate this is that when you on the one of those paths, if you will, was because of the one way ticket show, because I think that when you have a guest on a show that impacts you, 
or that influences you, it really does, he or she does influence you and does impact you. Every guest is going to impact you. Maybe I won't, but I'm sure there's other guests on your, on Juwans that have, or that will impact you. But for me, um, it was, sorry. You've already inspired me to travel more. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, I think we all want to travel and dust off our passports now that we've been grounded for so long, but um, so several things. Number one, I will say it's the one-way ticket show because I had been toying, and I'll get to that. But I, I had, um, you know, I had given up meat for, but I did eat fish when I was living in Singapore. I did give it up for a seven-year period, and then I went back to eating meat. I only ate kosher meat, and I just kind of kept questioning this whole notion of eating meat. So it came from a point of. Why am I eating meat? It came from an environmental standpoint. It came from a health standpoint. It came from a um, animal rights standpoint. And it, it came from also just making my life easier kind of standpoint and simplifying my life. So I had been toying with the idea of eating less and less meat. And I indeed had been eating reducing my meat consumption. Although as part of my diet every morning, as part of my, you know, what I would eat for breakfast, I would have six egg whites for breakfast. Okay. In addition to a whole bunch of other things, because I would do it like after a workout and I don't have to tell you, Dan, cause that's the world you live in. Um, but I felt like I wanted to limit the amount of animal products I was eating, especially with the hormones that they're injected with and everything else. And then through the years I was having vegans on my program that really helped me along that process and made me think differently. And the real vegan that did it for me was, her name is Victoria Moran. And she has been at this for, I think, over 30 years. She is the really go-to vegan uh, writer. She runs the Main Street Vegan Academy here up in Harlem. And she's really the noted person. And you cannot meet a lovelier person than Victoria is. And she's one of those examples of a guest that's become a friend. And while we were having the interview and I was sharing with her what I was eating for breakfast, and I said, I don't know if I can give up my eggs for breakfast. I don't know if I can give up the milk that I put in my coffee and the oatmeal. And she said one little thing. And she said, well, maybe you just need to rethink your breakfast. And the light bulb kind of went off in my head. And I realized what can I substitute is a real heavy duty protein for eggs instead of having the eggs. And I realized I couldn't have beans or lentils. So I did that. And then I switched to the almond milk. And then it just sort of like went from there and there. And that's how it all happened. Do you feel uh, healthier since you've- I know I'm supposed to say yes, but the (laughs) the reality is, is that I was eating pretty well anyway beforehand. So it's not like there's this huge sea change where I was like eating meat 24 seven and drinking and this and that and everything else, and then turn the switch on or off. Um, I will say though, sometimes, you know, how after a meat meal, you feel very heavy. Yeah. I don't feel that heaviness after I have a meal, but that's not to say, but I never go hungry if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So I want to just, I don't have a personal, uh, what do they call it? How in the, uh, 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 I don't have a personal opinion on this, but I, but I will say that as a, as a person who loves travel and you love travel, I, I would be, um, amiss to not mention the late, great Anthony Bourdain's, yes. 
on vegans. He says in his book, <laughs> Kitchen Confidential, he wrote, vegetarians and their Hezbollah-like splinter faction, the vegans are persistent irritant to any chef worth a damn. Vegetarians are the enemy of everything good and decent in the human spirit and an affront to all I stand for, <laughs> the pure enjoyment of food. That is classic Bourdain. <laughs> that is classic if- Bourdain. But, but he makes a point, and his point is basically like, a vegan, being a vegan is a diet of privilege. Well, it's very interesting. Did I mention to you in our pre-conversation that I interviewed Anthony Bourdain? Did you really? Yeah. When I was living in Singapore, I used to interview a lot of the celebs. And that's how I actually got the idea to do the one-way ticket show. So he came to Singapore in... Would have never washed my hand ever. I don't know. It must have been 2000. I have his books also somewhere here, which he autographed and drew photos in. And Yeah, I'll send you photos of that. And it must have been maybe in 2003 or something like that. And I had an interview with him um, and I, I, asked, I, I asked him and I bring this up in our con- my conversation with Phil Rosenthal in the latest episode. I asked him, what was the vilest thing he ever ate? And his answer was chicken McNuggets. <laughs> yep, that's, that would be boring. Okay. But he, I will say this to his credit of being influenced by people that you interview so at that time I had given up meat, but I was eating fish and dairy. So lacto-avo, okay? And I was eating fish. Um, and I asked him about vegetarians. And what he told me was, he said, I feel like if you become vegetarian or you become vegan, in other words, if you're giving up meat, you're missing out on a huge cultural experience. And after that, I decided to go back to eating meat. I, I get that. And uh, because I, and I remember exactly where I was that first moment that I ate meat. And everyone told me, if you ever go back to eating chicken or beef, you know, your body's going to reject it and all these things. And I happened to have been in uh, Sydney. I was sent there for a meeting. It was a one day meeting. It was on a Thursday. And I told my boss, I'm not flying down for one day. I'm going to, I was living in Singapore. I said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to make it a long weekend. And a very old friend of mine happens to be Jewish and she was living there. And so she invited me to her friends for Friday night dinner. And of course, the first course came out and what was it? It was chicken soup. And after seven years, I said, okay, this is the moment, Stephen. And I ate the chicken soup and they served chicken for dinner. And I left the meal and nothing happened. So there you go. (laughs) Did you tell them? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want them to think I was going to, you know, something was going to happen. I'm I'm going to ask you after the show who it is, because in a couple of weeks, we actually have a rabbi from Sydney coming on the show. Uh, Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I I was there. Was I guess it was a year and a half ago. Um, uh, It's a 12 hour flight from Singapore. It's 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 a long flight, man. It it took me. I flew 12 hours, 11 or 12 hours from Israel to Hong Kong. And then a four-hour layover, and then an eleven or twelve-hour flight from Hong Kong to Sydney, and it is the longest. Now I splurged and I upgraded to premium. Um, it was the longest time I've ever spent traveling somewhere. So, so, what I often say about things like that is, yes, that's true. It's a it's a pain in the ass, and yet, and yet, and yet, a hundred years ago, for you to make that journey, you probably would have been on a boat for the better ha- the better portion of about eight months, and most uh, yeah, few months, yeah, yeah, 
uh, quarantine stations in, in different places around the world, especially. In who who has that? Is it Louis C.K.? Or, and or and has no, a, he, he has a bit about um, complaining about, about no, Wi-Fi no. in the airport. So, somebody has a joke about how long it takes to travel and how we complain. And they're like, you used to, used to you know, want to go from, I don't know, New York to California, and you'd wind up with a whole different family on the way because they would all die of dysentery, yeah. and you'd marry and have kids. And by well, the time you get there, Louis, you're just a different group of people. <laughs> Louis C.K. also famously says, uh, you know, "It's funny that people complain about things on the airplane. Like you know, you get on the airplane, it's like, like the Wi-Fi doesn't, them, right. the Wi-Fi doesn't work. Like you didn't like, have that fight. You're in a absolutely flying through the sky." The miracle of flight. The miracle of, of human flight. I remember the first time I saw a movie on a plane. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so novel. It's you know. so nice. I remember. But too. actually, Dan, you're a big guy. So you really, I'm sure, feel like just a, a, a sardine or a hot dog in those seats. It is. Uh, you, you can't tell. We're both kind of big guys. Um, and it's very uncomfortable sitting in economy seats. Um, well, I can't tell Benny because he's partly off screen there. So, okay. We're all getting very wistful talking about flying. Yeah, I know. I managed to sneak off to Dubai between the quarantines and hopefully, hopefully again soon. But uh, has, has there been, as any, they say, inshallah, inshallah, exactly. Have there been any places where it was very difficult to either be a vegan, vegetarian, kosher, whatever you were at the time, and have there been places where it was very difficult to be Jewish? I, uh, no, I, you're not supposed to answer a question with no but or however, but I'm going to answer it because I feel like you're, you're old friends at this point, and I'm going to say no. <laughs> the, the reality is, is that um, uh, because vegan, I've, I've only been vegan for this short period of time, okay? So it hasn't been too crazy in terms of a time. And part of the time I've been vegan, um, I was in Israel and I did the whole trip vegan. And that was just a real, that was easy. The only one time I will say that was difficult in Israel or at least really tempting. Um, so uh, I went with the social media committee from Jewish National Fund. They were shooting while I was doing interviews for Israel Cast. We went up north and we visited um, Erez Komarovsky from Lechem Erez, and who there, there's just not a greater guy. He was just absolutely fantastic. He very graciously invited us into his home and he had cheese there. And the cheese was probably from some, it was from a local farm and bread, cheese, and olive oil. And at that moment, I said, Do I really, do I, do I want to have the cheese? Or do I want to sort of really go through Israel as a total 100% vegan? And so the total 100% vegan won over, over having that cheese. Okay. So I will say though, that if there are opportunities, like when I go back to my hometown, Chicago, and there's something there that's quintessentially, I, I don't think that I'm going to be so a thousand percent strict as to say, I will never not have another dairy fill in the blank again, or if something is made with egg, I, I don't think I will live the rest of my life like that. So I really want to be very above board, you know, about that. And certainly during lockdown, and as far as I can control it, I will be able to control it. The only thing I will say, though, is that where where was it challenging? So I did make a con concerted effort to go off the wagon was when I was in Saudi Arabia 
because when I was there, as I said, I like to go places on my own for the first couple of days and then stay a couple of days after. And for the first couple of days that I was there, I guess it was two days before I met the group and we were in Jeddah and around the corner from the hotel where I was staying, there was a Yemenite restaurant and, um, there was no English menu, but I had my little guidebook and I showed them that I was vegan. And so they had the most, the food was just fantastic. And the bread was just, as I like to say, it was the bomb. And just as an aside, so I went there twice for two dinners. Okay. The table next to me on the second evening, there were two men and I struck, uh, struck up a conversation with them. Turns out they were two retired Saudi generals. Mm -hmm. And so they invited me to their table and we had the most wonderful conversation. Both of them had sons in the United States training here. Okay. So that that's part of the beauty of travel. So I will say it was difficult there. So I did the best I could, but there were times that I did have either dairy or eggs. Okay. And at one point I had fish on that trip. So that actually was difficult. We won't tell anyone. Um, you won't tell. And then in terms of being Jewish, no, um, uh, no, because I've always made do. In other words, when I was in Syria, for example, that it was during Hanukkah. And I certainly wasn't going to bring in a menorah in case they checked my right. bags. Um, so I brought in tea candles, a couple boxes, because halachically, as you know, the candles only have to burn for 30 minutes. Right. So I burned the candles for 30 minutes, blew them out. I had brought aluminum foil so I can put it on. And that's what I did for Hanukkah. Okay. Um, going into Saudi Arabia, I did bring my talis and tefillin. And before I got there, I have a very old friend who is an international lawyer, Jewish, lives in Abu Dhabi, and has lived there for 30 odd years, I think. Uh, also comes back to New York, okay? So, make, you know, goes between the two. And he said, don't worry, you can bring in anything you want, it's fine, etc." Well, I got to Abu Dhabi and to connect, to fly into Saudi Arabia, to fly into Jeddah, and you're jet lagged. And of course, your mind starts racing. And of course, you start reading the guidebook again that says you're not allowed to bring any religious articles into the country. And of course, you think you're going to get arrested. And then you think you go down this rabbit hole of who am I going to call to get me out of jail and da 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 da, et cetera. You're call the and, guy that told you it was fine to bring it in. Pardon me? You're going to call the guy that's the international lawyer that told you it was fine to bring it exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, you go through all these things because you're jet lagged and you're tired. And then you think I've never been there before. And you put your luggage on the conveyor belt and the thing goes through and nothing goes off and you get your luggage and you're fine. And so anyway, wow. what's, um, there was one other time. Can I just share this? Yeah, please. Um, where I was, I was actually legitimately concerned about my Jewish identity. And again, it's like anything else in life. You know, oftentimes people will ask that question. And of course you're asking that because this is the Juan's podcast, but I'm not one of those people that will go to a country. And, you know, when I check into the hotel, hi, here's my passport, by the way, I'm Jewish. Sure, sure. You know, it's part of you, but if someone asks, fine. And if not, not. Yeah. The only time though, where I was a little bit concerned was, uh, as we were just discussing, I was in Syria, I was there in 2008. 
And I thought, as long as I'm in the neighborhood, I will go to Israel afterwards. And I flew on Royal Jordanian and I purposely had the travel agent that was booking my tickets on Royal Jordanian do really two separate tickets. So one was to Syria, then it was from Damascus. I went, I flew to Aleppo and then went through Syria and then from Damascus to Amman and then from Amman to Tel Aviv, back to Amman and back to the United States. And I said, make sure these are separate tickets because I don't want any problems. Okay. I make it through the whole country. Syria is fascinating. And by the way, I hopefully will, and I should have done this already, do a whole series on um, Syria before the war and share pictures and photos, okay, and find out what happened to some of the people I met along the way. Anyway, so I got to the airport in Damascus and I gave them my passport and I, I gave them like my reservation number or whatever it was, cause it was all electronic. And I was really concerned because I wasn't sure like what would pop up on the screen. And I was leaning over and wouldn't you know it, as soon as they typed in my name, that whole monitor, <laughs> that whole monitor lit up like a Christmas tree. Tel Aviv Yafo, Tel Aviv Yafo, Tel Aviv Yafo, the whole monitor. I will never forget it. And I'm not exaggerating. It filled up the whole screen. And that concerned me. I did remember though, someone at the Syrian consulate here who I've gotten to know who has become a friend and he has since left. He said, look, don't worry anytime you're there. He said, everybody knows that people are making a trip through the region. So you're going to be just like one of those people making a trip through the region. Don't worry about anything. Well, of course I was worrying when it said Tel Aviv Yafo lighting up like a Christmas tree on the monitor. So the two agents were talking amongst themselves. They, they took my passport away. I said, where are they going? The one agent said, um, they're going to photocopy it. It seemed like an eternity before the guy came back, okay? Which it wasn't, but it seemed like it. Right. He came back. The two of them are still talking. I just wanted my passport back more than anything. They're going back and forth, back and forth. I don't pretend to speak Arabic, but out of about the 15 or 20 words that I know, I could pick out two. Who? And then Khalas. So I understood he, and then something, 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 and then Khalas. Like, in other words, forget about it, as you know. So, and then they gave me back my passport, and they probably figured he's just going on, he's doing a tour of the region, and that was it. So that was the only time in all of these crazy travels that I've ever felt a little bit sort of concerned. Did you ever follow up with a, <laughs> did you ever follow up with a travel agent? Yes, I did. And he said, oh, we made two separate tickets and it was just Royal Jordanian, the way that it's configured and all the rest and so on. But that was the only time. But there, there is one other Jewish story. Can I, can I just share really briefly though, as we talk about Jewish unity, um, I, I was in Ethiopia in, um, I'm trying to think what year it was. It was in um, 2009, I think I was there. And my, one of my brothers has an Ethiopian friend here in New York. And he said, you should meet this woman, Ricky, because she's from Ethiopia and she'll tell you all about it. And she's Jewish and all. And we met and she told me, she said, I'm, a I'm, in a I'm from a village called Ambobar, which is outside of Gondar, which there was a large Jewish community. And 
I visited Gondar and I was actually there. It was before Rosh Hashanah. So anyway, and I visited, that's a whole other story. But I wanted to visit her village. And I had a car, a Jeep, and a driver and a guide. And we started going to the village and we went on the main road. And then they had asked directions because they certainly never heard of this village. And we turned off the main road onto sort of another, it wasn't a road, it was a bunch of sort of boulders leading up a, I don't want to call it a mountain, but it wasn't a hill. So it was like a smallish mountainy kind of thing. It's probably a word for it, can't think of it. And we're going up these boulders and I, I am not joking. I thought the wheels were going to come off and this whole Jeep was going to fall apart because we were driving on boulders. We get to the top and there's a small village and there's a room that hit like a big recreational kind of sanctuary type room. And it had been donated by somebody and that's where people observed and so on. And there were some people still living there and all the rest who weren't Jewish. And I think there were a few Jewish people whatever it was, nobody spoke anything and I couldn't get the whole gist of it. But the one story that I do want to just, that I take, took away from that experience was this whole notion of real emunah, this whole notion of real belief in Judaism and practice of Judaism. And we talk all about Galut. We talk about the diaspora. And certainly there are communities in the United States, Fargo, North Dakota or Boise or wherever it is, where there are small Jewish communities that are part of the diaspora. But when you're in the middle of Ethiopia on some mountaintop that you can only access by a boulder road and you are still practicing Judaism and you're still practicing your faith and you have enough faith to come down that mountain and to go on an airplane and to head to Israel is something just that you would only see in the movies really. And that's beyond belief. And I, I wanted to share that with you because I think as we talk about Jewish travel, you can't help but be moved by seeing a place like that and how off the beaten path it is and the people that live there that had that faith. 100%. And, and with that, I would just say that I, we interviewed, uh, and I think you've interviewed him as well, Naftali Aklum. I'm sorry? I, we interviewed uh, Naftali Aklum. I think you've interviewed. Yes, Naftali. Yes, lovely man. Fascinating guy. Um, and and the more I, I and I do a lot of work with Ethiopian National Project with with tourism, the more I hear stories like the one you've just sh uh, shared, and the more I, I work with people like Naftali and others, the more I'm absolutely convinced that. Um, and this is more of an Israel, an internal Israeli thing. You know, just like there are trips to educate Israelis of the Holocaust that go to Poland. Uh, there should be trips that also take people to to places like Ethiopia to teach about the power of Jewish diaspora and the meaning of of of, of Israel for uh, for for non Ashkenazi communities. Yes, and you know we had on Israel Cast we had Chen Mazik, who you may know, yeah. who's a really a leader in the. Uh, I don't like to always use the word Sephardic because they're not Sephardic, but the Mizrahi community, right, and. Um, to tell their story and to tell his grandmother's story of what happened to her and her, you know, compatriots during World War II in Baghdad. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent. 
because that's the story really of the Jewish people, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, and I, and I hope and I wish that it was also told more uh, in the American Jewish context as well. Yes. The people, especially, you know, I can, I can speak for majority of American Jews are, are Ashkenazi Jews and they probably go through their life and the, and the first time they encounter something otherwise is when they come to Israel and it's very it's very, exotic it's always it's, exotic yeah it's always it's always put in that context <laughs> um, yeah. and the truth of the matter is is that it's 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 not uh, and and it's something that you know we're one big Jewish family and you've traveled around the world and discovered that I think for the people that aren't um, you know they, they should know it as well uh, I guess I guess I'll just kind of wrap up by saying this. Well, let know. me throw in before sure. we wrap up. Um, uh, no, I mean wrap up the, the oh wrap the, up the that. train Sorry, of thought. I we wanted to wrap. No, up. no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's all good. I wanted I wanted to say uh, your comment earlier about you know for for him being kosher and vegan or different parts kosher and then vegetarian and then vegan. And when I travel, I'm practically a vegetarian because yeah, it, it, that's just the easiest way to be kosher. It is a bummer, but not uh, the Hezbollah splinter. Group. Not the Hezbollah splinter group. I'm more of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Got it. Know, regular run of the mill. Um, you do have a kandura. Look, I do have. I, I, I've been told I look very authentically Emirati in it. Hamdan, <laughs> Hamdan Fefferman. Yeah, Dan, you can really you you cross so many cultural because you could go from sort of Spanish to Italian to Greek to Middle Eastern and to I've Indian to Pakistani. And I've done it. Um, You're lucky. I've done it for fun. Uh, no, I, I uh, my mom's side is Iraqi. They're Baghdadi, mm. uh, and, and so it's where the the looks come from. And and, and my Arabic's actually not bad, so I can actually uh, get by. Nice. Um, but uh, as a foodie, you know, the three of us have you know connected here over being foodies. And, and you know, you tell me this a lot. It is a bummer. It is a bummer that I can't go, uh, even in parts of my own country where you know it's the Jewish country, and there's a lot of the really great restaurants in this country are not kosher um, and like obscenely not kosher, not even like just, they don't have a kosher certificate. The hachshir, yeah. They, they like, they legitimately serve pork and shellfish. Um, but especially when you go abroad, it, it is a bummer. It, it's a bummer and it's a trade off. And, and I'm sure, you know, you, you have it um, also. Well, um, I, mu- I must say, Dan, it's like, like I said, if, if, if there's a time where, I either it's just way too difficult or I really say, look, I'm in XYZ place. I really want to try the whatever it is, the cheese or the, you know, I'll I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I just first got to get on an airplane and then I'll make that decision. But um, I was just going to say something, but I but I think generally speaking, you can almost have better experiences you can sometimes have even better experiences as a vegan than the rank and file because I was at a conference um, before lockdown, obviously, and you know I had paid for it, et cetera, and they had the breakfast. And I went to one of the hotel staff. I said, excuse me, but I'm vegan. I said, unfortunately, there isn't anything for me to eat here. They took me upstairs to the restaurant mm-hmm. and they said, look, they said, we totally get it. They said, while you're here at the hotel, um, just you can have whatever you want on the buffet just take whatever you want and they had an egg station but instead of having eggs they had a tofu scramble i gotta tell you that was among the best breakfasts i've had in a really long time so sometimes it can work in your favor and also the other thing is you know when you order a meal on an airplane and you order a special meal you do get served first yes 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 and i will say to ll's credit they have very good vegan meals 
and their bialis are really good. They do. I, I tried, uh, I flew Ethiopian when I went to, uh, to Dubai and uh, I, I didn't know how the kosher meal would turn out. So I took the kosher on the way there. It, it was God awful. It's the worst meal I've ever had in my mm-hmm. life. I, I literally couldn't eat it. And then on the way back, I switched it to Indian vegan, which I was hoping meant Indian food. It was not. It was just was vegan. It? And it was just rice with some vegetables. And I said, okay, this is not food. Because usually Indian, usually the Indian meals are really good on planes. So I've heard. Um, yeah. That, that was a bummer. Um, um, so we like to kind of wrap up with uh, kind of a, a more fun element of this whole kind of podcast. This whole thing has been fun. Exactly. Sometimes we have very serious or political or religious discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You always have good questions. I have two. And I kind of want to keep them food related. Um, See, so you mentioned Anthony Bourdain talked about his most vile food. What's the most vile food that you've had to eat or eaten in your many travels? But then also, what is the single best food? Um, and I'll add in an element of that surprised you. So not like, you know, I don't know. But so the, the worst thing you've had to eat when you traveled, and then maybe what's the most surprisingly delicious thing you've had when you <sighs> I, I can never say the worst or the best of anything, okay? But we can just talk about things that pop into one's mind, okay? Um, one of the vilest things that I ever ate um, was birthday cake when I was living in Beijing. And in fact, I was having a conversation with my sister just about two days ago, and I told her this. Um, when I was living in Beijing, in the early 90s, and it was someone's birthday, they would always bring in a cake into the conference room, into the office. And um, it was from a so-called Western bakery, but the frosting on the top, and believe me, I love a good birthday cake. I love birthday frosting. Give me a good carrot cake with good carrot cake frosting, and that's I'm all over it, okay? This was the vilest frosting you would ever eat. It was almost like someone took rancid butter and smeared it on a cake. (laughs) And every time they would try and serve it to me, I would always have to say to them in Chinese, you know, oh, um, I I, I just can't have it now because I got to go on the phone or I'm dieting or whatever it was. I would always try and make some excuse because it was vile. I'm allergic to birthdays. (laughs) Yeah, I'm allergic to (laughs) birthdays. Vile. Another vile thing related to that is were were the people, was everyone else eating and enjoying it? Oh, they loved it. (laughs) I just, for the life of me, that birthday cake was vile. Okay. I can still remember it. And another thing that was also really vile was um, uh, I was in Tibet back in 1992 and they put um, yak milk in tea. Yes. And I don't know if you ever had that or not, but I, it, it really smells vile. And I thought I'm going to just try a little bit of that just because I'm here. And okay. And I touched it to my lips and that was enough for me. I couldn't even drink it. And I, I couldn't proceed. So shall we say, um, so that was the, that was the worst. Those were amongst the worst. Let's put it that way. Um, I think amongst the best, um, you know, one of the things that I absolutely, I, I just thought of this because of course we're, we're dealing with, um, two gentlemen, I'm speaking to two gentlemen now in, 
uh, Israel. You know, there's a place for Sabir on in Tel Aviv uh, on Frischman, right off of Gordon. Do you know the place? Yeah, good times. That to me is one of the best things to eat. But I will say, when it comes to falafel, the best falafel I ever had was actually in Sidon in Lebanon. There was a um, eatery. It was like a little cafe kind of thing at a corner. I remember exactly where it was because there's like a little uh, castle thing in the water right there opposite where this was. So it's easily identifiable. And that falafel was so um, uh, light on the outside and so crispy on the outside, but really, really light on the inside. It wasn't like uh, a cannonball, shall we say. And it was the most ethereal falafel I've ever eaten in my life. So, you know, this is why you travel. You like to try these kinds of things along the way. And I know I can probably go down the whole laundry list. We are talking about Iran. The apricots in Iran are like nowhere else in the world. So, you know, everywhere has its own deliciousness. Yeah. All right. I have, I have two questions uh, of my own now. Uh, the first question is, the pandemic is over. They give us the green light to start traveling again. Where's the first place you go? You must have thought about it. And the second is, I guess I'm going to take the uh, the one-way ticket show and kind of change the concept a little bit and say, if you could interview any person, past, present, or future, who would that be? Yeah. Um, the In terms of the travel, it would either be to Iraq, Pakistan, or Afghanistan, one of those countries and then stop off somewhere in the Gulf and then also stop off in Israel. In terms of when who you, I would want, I'm when sorry. You, when you do come to Israel, make sure to come see us. You got it. Are you kidding? And we're going to take you, I'm going to take you to what I think is the best falafel in Israel. Okay. Easily one of the best hummus places in Israel. Okay. You got a deal. You got a deal for that. Absolutely. Awesome. Sorry. Now for your next uh, answer. For my next one, um, I would have to say my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother, because very sadly, she passed away before I was born. And, you know, my, my late mother kept her memory alive in so many ways. And everyone that knew her knew what a remarkable woman she was. And I would want to meet her. It's beautiful. Yeah. I think we have uh, maybe an idea there for a show. <laughs> What's that? We'll have to pay Stephen royalties. You're right. It's no, trademarked, my friend. No, but you no know, one-way ticket, but a show where maybe this exists, but a show where you bring on, you know, journalists and talk show hosts and podcasters, and who would you interview from history and why, and have a discussion just about that. Uh, yeah. Well, I will say though, if there was if there was any person though today that's living today, who I would want to interview, it would be um, Her Majesty the Queen. That would be fascinating. Absolutely. No, no questions asked. I would want to interview her. She Part of it is she doesn't do interviews. And the other thing is because she is li living history. She really is living she's, history. She's going to be 95 this year um, in, in April. And she is living history. And I would want to interview her. Are you a fan of... Uh... The Netflix, um, the crown. crown. I've seen, I have watched the crown and I've seen 
it and I binge watched it, um, I, one has to go into it knowing that some of the storylines behind it right. are embellished or not true. Some of the overarching stories, yes, did happen, but some of the details are not necessarily true. Some of the personalities are played for the cameras, et cetera. But I did, I found it fascinating. I, I really enjoyed watching it. And if nothing else, what I think a show like The Crown does, it, it draws attention to history. Um, you know, certainly the, the last season was um, more contemporary with Charles and Diana. And, you know, I lived through all that. You, you both did as well. But the earlier seasons where the queen is in her younger years, the younger reigning Queen Elizabeth, um, it, it was kind of nice because, again, it just gets people engaged in history. And anything that gets people engaged in history is good in my book. It was also such a, such a, a much more elegant time at least the way it's depicted. And, and that show yeah. does a tremendous job with the set and with the wardrobe and, and just bringing you into that place. But, you know, going back to what I started at the beginning of the show saying that I, you know, I, I saw myself a little bit in, uh, in what, uh, what, what uh, Ivan Orkin was saying about being an old soul where I, I see myself as that way too. I would have preferred to have been born, let's say in the forties and to go through the sixties uh, and the and the 70s and and that's kind of one of the reasons why is i think they just were much more stylish and they just were were more uh, you know people took their time well you know there was there was more i i will say i mean it depends on who you were there was certainly a greater sense of decorum um and you know let's agree on that um you know it certainly i think if you were certain segments of society it was probably different and i think you know we, we always look at the past with rose-colored glasses um having said that though um i do think that there is a certain charm to be living during those years in the sense that again there was a sense of decorum and certainly as a traveler if one had money in those days to be able to travel without the hordes of tourists today and to be able to travel um uh, you know, in a, in, in a much more stylish way. In fact, I'm going to give a shout out to a gentleman named Jeffrey Weil. I'm going to be interviewing him for an upcoming episode of the One Way Ticket Show. And he wrote a memoir called All Aboard. And he actually did a lot of work uh, promoting Israel from a travel perspective. And I started dipping into the book and he, he was raised in London and he talks about visiting Israel in the early 1960s. And there's a photo of him and his family in Jaffa and, and he wrote, this is how we dress, dress to visit Jaffa in 19, I think it's 61. And of course, they're all in jackets and ties. They all look great. And, you know, you, you see the way people dress today. And that's actually one of my big pet peeves. There's something to be said for being comfortable, but there's something also to be said for being sloppy. And I think how you dress and how you present yourself says a lot about you. And today it's just, and you know, you're talking, Dan, about the flights that you've taken to the UAE or to Sydney, for example. And I would venture to say that most of the people on those planes weren't dressed like they would have been dressed in 1961 visiting Jaffa. And I don't know how it is in New York right now in the pandemic, but in Israel, you know, the pandemic has really given us a number on this where you see people that have completely and totally taken all decorum and thrown, out, thrown it out the window. I see I see people literally walking down the street to, in their pajamas. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Like wearing pajamas, straight yeah, up sure, sure. pajamas. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, Stephen. I have a, a constant argument with my wife every time we travel uh, abroad. Usually it's to America together, but, but not always. And um, I, you know, yeah, we're, we're not in the 60s or 70s where you wear a suit to get on a plane anymore. But uh, my philosophy is always look respectable and be comfortable at the same time. So I have my, this is my flying uniform. It is, yeah. it is a nice pair of jeans, like a fashionable pair of jeans, leather shoes, always leather shoes, um, and a dark color button-up shirt, um, dark so that, you know, stains, but, uh, but a proper button-up, you know, shirt. And she, you know, she gets on planes wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt. And I said, you can't do that. You, you yeah. look such, like such a slob. And she's like, I want to be comfortable. I don't care what people think of me. So no, you got like, this is, I don't know. This is, uh, well, the thing is, is number one, you get better service when you're dressed better. And the other thing is I was always taught, you never know who you're going to meet. Also true. And I, I want to say something, uh, Benny, because, um, you, um, uh, you very kindly did a little promotional, little visual, uh, for this conversation. And one of the photos that you featured was with yours truly and Tim Gunn, the famous fashion expert, who I think I referenced earlier on in the beginning of the show. And I remember once running into Tim on the subway and I looked like hell, okay? And I mean, absolute hell, but I thought I needed to go up to him and talk to him anyway, because I had previously invited him onto the show and I wanted to invite him on again. And it wasn't until the next round but I was so embarrassed by the way that I looked because here's Tim Gunn, who always looks well-dressed, who's always very presentable. And here I am, and I looked like hell. And I didn't quite look like hell. I looked like hell for me, but nevertheless, I know the difference. So you never know who you're gonna meet. And as I said, walking around here in New York City, you see everybody. And if you wanna invite them on your show or engage them in conversation, they'll engage you if you're well-dressed. You can't look like a schlub. I think so too. You I can't was, absolutely. Done, you know, uh, clean shaven or have the beard properly, you know, sculpted. Groomed. Yeah, you should be properly nice groomed. Shirt, nice clean shirt. You don't have to wear a suit and tie over it, but that's just me. I guess we're all kind of the people in the same public community. service announcement. Stop wearing pajamas outside. Oh, stop. I want to tell you something funny though. So, shortly after I moved to New York and I live here on the Upper West Side, and one of my very dear former co workers is a real old time Upper West Sider. She's lived here for a thousand years and her name is Sydney. And I said, Sydney, I really love living on the Upper West Side. I find it very casual. She said, yeah, it's so casual. People walk out in their pajamas and no one even cares. And this was pre COVID. Okay. And it's true. You see people walking around even out here on the Upper West Side for years in their pajamas. So there you go. Wearing pajamas people. And yoga pants. I don't accept it. I don't accept that yoga pants are an acceptable outfit outside of a yoga class. Dan, you have to listen to my interview. I'm not trying to plug my show, but you have to listen to my interview with Tim Gunn because he says, when did leggings ever become a pant? Yes. It's yeah. If you are not in the gym, don't wear yoga pants. Well, also the other thing is, is that not everybody's body is, (laughs) is suited to wear a certain thing, shall we say? (laughs) And, you know, and so that's another definite consideration. Another one that I have, as long as we're talking about pet peeves here, is trainers, okay? I personally believe trainers are meant for the gym. And if you're walking to the gym or walking back, fine. But if you're not in the gym, you can have very respectable looking and comfortable shoes that aren't trainers. Absolutely. 
hundred percent. What, what's your position on neck tattoos? On what? Neck tattoos. It's people now that are like super tattooed people that have like this crazy. <sighs> Do you know my my when you see like especially like if there's a woman on the subway and you're like oh my gosh she's so you know she's really put together this that, and the other she's beautiful whatever, and then it's sort of like you know she opens up her purse or a book or a or something. And then you see, she's got like tattoos, like all on her hand. And I'm like, what's the deal with that? For me, that I've kind of evolved away in a little bit. It's certainly not for me from a, first of all, a halachic standpoint. And then also just from a, you know, we're all going to get old and saggy one day. So, you know, that's not really a good look. No. Um, I'm not a big fan of them. I think if you want to do a creative one somewhere in your body, it can, for some people, it, they can pull it off. For other people, they can pull it off. <laughs> and it's for those that can pull it off, but I'm not the tattoo police. So I can't really say, All right, how about so both of you? I, I wish I could get a tattoo and for halachic reasons only. What I kind of tattoo and where would you get it? That's another show you should start. What kind of tattoo and where would you get it? Um, it would not be a visible one. Okay. Um, probably either chest. I've upper, thought about this, haven't you? Oh, definitely. Chest, upper arm, or upper back. Um, I've always wanted a lion. You see, and I'm not, and I'm, and, and, and to, you know, play the other side of that, I'm not religiously observant at all, and I have zero interest in getting a tattoo. It's not a burning desire for me, but sometimes I see tattoos and I think it's cool. Well, the only thing for me is I, the reason, especially why I couldn't get a tattoo, because like everything else in life, I can't make up my mind. <laughs> and then once I do it, I have like buyer's regret. So I would always think, well, should I have gotten that lion or should it have been a tiger or should it have been a whatever? The other thing is, though, is that, see, you're lucky, Dan, because you're, you're a bigger guy. And so a tattoo would read better on a bigger guy than I think on a smaller guy because it's more pronounced, if you will. Depends how big it is. But yeah, I also always like the, um, it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a religious guy in this, but uh, I'm also in, you know, like the CrossFit circles and all that. And, and we're both into like chefs and it's a different kind of circle, even though we're not chefs. And, yeah. and those are two worlds where, where the hardcore people do have a lot of ink. Yeah. And, um, and so that's just always something that's been like, I, w I wish I could do it, but it's, you know, on um, some people, they can, I mean, believe me, I think on some people, it, they can pull it off and it looks yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. I really think so. On other people, it's a little bit forced. But um, I think the ones that are the best ones are like the, like you, you'll see people at the gym, for example, on the back of their shin, they might have like an arrow or something. Yeah, yeah, and it's but... really subtle. And it's like, wow, that's really clever. It's really cool. And if you're wearing a pair of shorts, you might see it and that's fine. Um, and then they can pull it off. Yeah. Exactly. It depends on the person. I think I had a I'm very libertarian when it comes to those things. I almost think at the end of the day, if someone wants to do them, God bless them, let them do them. Sure. I had a neighbor when I lived uh, in Hotelia and he had a tattoo. He, he was a, he liked surfing and he had a tattoo on his back that was really big and like an arch. And it said surf for life. But whoever gave him the tattoo spelled surf S-E-R-F. No. Oh, no. <laughs> speak English. And I didn't have the heart oh, to tell him. Oh, my God. I didn't have the heart to tell him. That's awful.
Well, it's like Chinese characters. Sometimes people do a Chinese character and it's upside down or it's wrong or it's backwards or something. That, like, but surfer, that's that that takes the cake though. That's and because there's like another meaning when you surf. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. Hilarious. Uh, all right. Steven Shallowitz, how can people find you? Plug what you got going on. They can find me by contacting Dan and Benny, who are my new agents. <laughs> First of all, thank you both for this really fun conversation. Really, I really enjoyed it. Thank so you. anyone that's an earshot of this, if you're still listening, hopefully hopefully you are, um, <laughs> do check me out on all social media at Stephen Shalowitz. Once again, at Stephen Shalowitz and also at The One Way Ticket Show. And people can go to theonewayticketshow.com or subscribe to The One Way Ticket Show and IsraelCast. Go to IsraelCast on all your podcast platforms or jnf.org slash IsraelCast. jnf.org slash IsraelCast or IsraelCast on podcast platforms. Uh, we release every other Wednesday. And find me on social media. And I love connecting with people wherever they are. Awesome. Awesome. Well, th this was one of our three-hour-plus episodes that we were talking about. Oh, listen, this was so much fun, really. I feel like, I feel like I've known you guys all my life, actually. So... Don't be surprised if when I come to Israel, I move in for five months or something into both your homes. Please, you are more than welcome to. Thank you. That's very kind. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us on the show. Thank you. And we'll be back here next week with another episode of Juwans. Yeah, we've got a nice episode next week because Purim is coming up. So make sure you tune in. What are both you dressing up as for Purim, by the way? A guy in his pajamas. <laughs> How novel. I wonder where you got that inspiration from, Dan. <laughs> I don't know. My kids usually come up with great family costume ideas. And so I let them uh, take take the lead. And uh, last year I was one of some kind of superhero or another. I'm happy always to do that. I plan that. on going as a tired dad. You're good at that. Will that be a stretch? Total stretch. <laughs> Final question. Favorite flavor of Hamantaschen? Ooh, good one. I can't believe Porm is next week. Okay, so uh, I, I the other day went to the bakery and they had them out for the first time and I got a bunch of them. And Of course you did. I, of course I did. I love he, he won't come work out with me, but he'll go buy a bunch of cookies. <laughs> and his priorities in life. I yeah, got to huh? do what I got to do. Chocolate was great, but I discovered that I really, really like halva. Yes. Uh, yeah. Halva, I, I think that's my absolute favorite. It's but delicious. if we're talking about classic flavors. Don't go with it. It's poppy. I, I like a good poppy seed. Uh, Oh, do you? Okay. I like date. Date. I, I tried this. I don't like date the ones. I don't like the date ones. Delicious. How about you? Um, you know, I'm, I like the halva. I like the chocolate. I have a big sweet tooth. I'll say I do like a good strawberry one or I do like a good apricot one. I don't think I've ever had an apricot one. It's nice. Is it? It's nice. It's a little tart, a little sweet. So it's yeah. Uh, anybody doing savory? We did. We did one year um, for a Mishloch Manot. We did breakfast, lunch, dinner, hamantaschen, or, or mm. was, yeah. And so we did pizza hamantaschen. We did peanut butter and jelly one. And then we did, um, I forget what the last one was. I like that. What a great yeah. idea. And it was cute. Breakfast, was, lunch, and dinner. Idea. It was a great idea. She executed it very well. Um, it, was, it was cool. Yeah, you can definitely use savory one. For the savory. Very cool. Really? Anyway, well, listen, thank you. I wish you all a Chag Purim Sameach. And just really thanks so much for everything and look forward to continuing the conversation.
Fantastic. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank we'll you. See you all next time on Juanced. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.